Hey guys, just wanted to give you a little bit of a heads up. Uh, this episode, uh, well one, I want to apologize. Technically, this episode should have been up this previous Thursday. However, um, because of an interview that I was conducting for the show, it got pushed back, editing took a little bit longer, and it became a whole thing. Uh, so I want to thank you all for being patient, especially with the holidays. I technically, I've done, I've looked it up, uh, December 1st, I believe, would have been the anniversary, the one year anniversary of the Shameless Picture Show. And I'm sure uh, in the upcoming episode, me and Nick are going to do something proper uh, as a way to uh, celebrate our one year anniversary. But uh, I guess in a weird way, this episode has kind of become a um, an anniversary episode. Uh, so thank you all for listening and thank you all for your patience. I know it necessarily hasn't been easy. And while we've kept, we've done a good job, I think, of keeping to our, our every other Thursday schedule. Sometimes things happen and life gets in the way. Uh, but the reason I'm recording this is to, uh, give a little preface. Um, so I know someone who worked on Rocky who was close personal friends of John G. Avildsen, the director. And I asked him if he wanted to be on the show, and he said yes. Uh, And that person's name is Lloyd Kaufman. For those of you who don't know, Lloyd Kaufman is the co-creator of Troma Entertainment. He is also the creator of The Toxic Avenger, which is exciting. I met Lloyd many years ago at the Cannes Film Festival. I was an editor for him for many years, and he was a production manager on Rocky and worked on a lot of John G. Avildsen's films. So like I said, uh, Lloyd was gracious enough to come on the show and talk for a while, and talk for a while he did. Originally, this was supposed to be a half-hour interview, and uh, I think he talked 20 minutes alone just about how he met John before he even got to Rocky. And while there's times I tried to steer him a little bit back on topic, I just kind of let Lloyd go and be Lloyd. Uh, Those of you who don't know what he's like, you're going to hear it. He's a very sweet man. He's knowledgeable as hell. And while many people know him because of Trauma and the Toxic Avenger and the schlocky films, sorry, Trauma-esque films he does, he does not like the word schlock, People don't realize how generally knowledgeable he is. He's a Yale graduate. He's fluent in French. He is one of the smartest people I know. And uh, this turned out to be a really great interview. And my only regret is that I was trying to cut it a little short for time. But he gave some great stuff. He gave some great filmmaking advice that he got from John. And... Yeah, I I was so happy that he was able to sit down and talk with us. So, that being said, I wanted to do this now because when I was talking to Lloyd, we never officially got an introduction in on the show. So, uh, this is a special episode. We're talking about one of my favorite movies. Uh, my buddy Greg, who will be introduced here in a couple minutes, is on the show. And I get to sit down and talk with Lloyd Kaufman about Rocky, about John G. Avildsen, and filmmaking in general. Uh, thank you guys for the great year of support. We love you all. Um, I'll cut this short and uh, let's get on to Rocky. Please let us know what you think of this episode because I'm very proud of it. I also want to thank a couple people. I want to thank Zach McLean for recording a really nice new intro that you're going to hear in just a moment. I want to thank Patrick Beck for selling me, I sold him money for it, but selling me a really nice microphone to make the show sound pretty 
and I want to thank the Directionals. Um, I just there's so many people I want to thank. Thank you all, and uh, thanks for listening. Warning! This movie podcast actually discusses movies. Be aware that it may discuss any of the following elements. Endings, surprise twists, unexpected cameos, and all manner of spoilers. If this doesn't appeal to you, why listen to a movie podcast? Without further ado, please enjoy our feature presentation, The Shameless Picture Show. Caffeinated lemonade. <laughs> Delightful. Delightful. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Shameless Picture Show. I am Michael Virus, and with me, as always, is the only man that can eat lightning and crap thunder. Nick Richards. <laughs> really, um, your butt's gonna hurt after that. Yeah, it's not and pleasant. I can do it. I would prefer not to. Yeah, I can do it. I just don't wanna. <laughs> Uh, and th- this is the first time for the Shameless Picture Show where we I've we've had a guest and Nick is here as well. <gasps> just just uh, causing a little bit of chaos. It's a little bit. It, <laughs> it is. Uh, and but uh, as the voice you just heard joining us today is my oldest friend in the film world, Gregory Bishop. Hello, Greg. Introduce yourself. Tell us what you do because I like having Greg on here because we started. At the lowly bottom of film school, he's risen up. I'm working at Best Buy. He's living the dream. Tell us a little about yourself, Greg. I won't say I'm living the dream, but it's fun. But uh, uh, I am a all, just a general fest, film festival guy. I work in Atlanta. I'm a programmer. I'm a, a programmer for a couple film festivals. Um, I also do a lot of content management. So I'm that guy who you uh, uh, ship your print to, um, and I make sure it gets there to the venue and it gets back. So you, uh, you're a tastemaker. Yes. Like you're uh, like I'm a programmer. No, you're I mean, you're a like not necessarily. You're a tastemaker, man. You have you have the choice to decide what is shown. You can be like that film is shit. Fuck it. We're going to show Rocky again. No, <laughs> Just like you show have Rocky for you, 10 days. Yeah. <laughs> no film has been good enough. Rocky for 10 days. No, I, I tastemaker <clears throat> is not quite I mean, programming is a lot of um it's it's gauging uh content for your audience uh, within the demographic, in this case, Atlanta, um, which is in the Atlanta area. Um, so bringing cinema that otherwise wouldn't come here or bringing um, films that Atlanta filmmakers, or rather films that Atlanta audiences would love to see and uh, kind of get the community excited. Um, it, it differs when you're a big international film, when we're an international film festival, when you're like one with a major hub, a lot of people coming in, certain, usually tend to like turn into a market, but um, we, uh, that's basically the gist of it. It's a lot of fun, though. Um, a lot of watching. A lot of like my jo- my day job is to watch films, like thousands of films. Like I, last year, I I had to watch a couple thousand shorts, um, and then this year, well, the, the difference was last year I didn't have enough enough time. I only had like a couple weeks to like go through it. This year I had a whole year to do it, so that was nice. Um, but but uh, but it's it's pretty fun. So you have no reason to complain because you know what my day job is. You come in into Best Buy and me convincing you need a new router, which you probably do. Quick question: Do I need a new router? Uh, <laughs> like, <laughs> it's cut, I imagine it cuts out every so often. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe you need a new router <laughs> and a new modem. I'll sell you on that later. So right. this this is exciting for me. This is exciting for me because I met Greg early on in film school. We bonded over love for stupid movies. 
Um, and a general enjoyment of wearing face paint I found later on. Because, like, I think like, we made a couple of things that required, required us to put face paint on, and we were all okay with it. Uh, and then high school, Nick. That's exactly. I, and, Nick, and I made terrible movies, so for you two to enjoy. Ah, I don't agree with you, sir. I think Normal was a great movie. Stop stop being harsh on yourself. Uh, Nick and I, if Greg, if you don't know, meet, met each other at the Beloit Film Festival. Nice. He kind of just invited himself to the table. Yeah, like, hey, <laughs> Simpsons and old school horror tattoos, like, this guy I can talk to. Yeah, because, like, I went to go see his film Normal, and, like, me and Amanda ordered some cheese curds from a restaurant that's known for them, so, like, well, fuck, we have to have cheese curds. And oh, Nick is like, I see you guys are eating cheese curds, can I join in? <laughs> and then it's it's been uh, the love affair we you know now for, you know, years and then 28 episodes of a TV show. And I met Greg when I did a podcast with him today. Yeah, about yeah. Uh, ten minutes ago. <laughs> Which awesome. is funny because I don't. I forget Nick that you don't know all the people I do because you're like. Uh, so I forget that like you don't know Greg. You don't know some of these people because they. I feel like because I do this show with you, they all at least are aware of who you are. <laughs> uh oh. Well, and something else that's weird we've talked about, but so Greg and the audience. Here's that um, I grew up in Wisconsin, like outside of Milwaukee. Nice. My whole life. Moved away halfway across the country and then met Michael. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. Who would have known? <laughs> uh, what year were you in Beloit? What was, what that, was that? 2008, 2009, 2008. Oh, no, no. It wasn't that long ago because I've only been with Amanda for about almost five years. So, two, uh, no, yeah, it couldn't have been that late. It couldn't have been that late. I shot 20, it in 2010. 2014? 2013, maybe? 13. I think it was 2013. Nice. Me and Amanda had just gotten together, and it was like, let me show you my world. <laughs> and they put me up. They put me up in a hotel and everything. It was. It was a. It was a sweet time, and nice. that was when I was showing for both *From the Darkness* theater and *Love You Still*, which is two movies that couldn't be any different <laughs> and it was great doing it was great doing q a's for that it's like i got a question for whoever did from the darkness theater oh that's me why did you have that man get murdered with a film canister and i'll explain why i've got a question for the person that directed love you still i'd raise my hand again that, that's me oh. what why didn't you have that man killed with a film canister <laughs> get with it um I like it yeah Cool. But anyways, on today's episode, we'll be discussing John G. Avildsen and Sylvester Stallone's 70s classic, Rocky. Rocky tells the story about a young, nobody boxer named Rocky Balboa. In his youth, he could have easily been a, he could have easily been a contender, but after falling... Ah, let me start that sentence over again. Through the magic of editing, it never happened. Which we won't edit. <laughs> nope. In his youth, he could have easily been a contender, but after falling in with the wrong crowd, he <laughs> after falling in with the wrong crowd, he works rundown boxing clubs for the little bit of money he can scrape together. However, Rocky's luck changes when the world heavyweight champion Apollo Cruz Oh, Paul Cruz. <laughs> There's a professional wrestler by the name of Apollo Cruz. So I got it confused. Oh my god. <laughs> However, Rocky's luck changes when world heavyweight champion Apollo Creed needs a new challenger. Creed's old challenger can't fight, and Creed 
Forever the Showman, is enamored by Rocky's moniker, the Italian Stallion. Rocky, together with his impish but beautiful girlfriend, Adrian, sets out to go the distance and prove that he's, got, he's not a bum and is actually a great boxer. Directed in 1976 by John G. Avildsen from a script written by our man Sylvester Stallone, Rocky has become the ultimate underdog story. And while cliched at times, it's got enough heart, pain, and instances of human suffering that it rises above its failings. Rocky was nominated for nine Academy Awards and won three of them. His name is Sylvester Stallone. He's the star of a new film called Rocky. He's been described as tough, handsome, talented, sexy, sensitive, dynamic, brilliant. He's been compared to Nicholson, De Niro, and Brando, but he is Rocky. He's the man who could be loved by only one woman because somehow she gets beneath the pain. He's every nobody who ever needed somebody. Rocky, do you believe that America is the land of opportunity? Yeah. I'll break both your arms so they don't work for you. He's every man who ever settled for something less. What am I crying, Nick? At least you have pride. I ain't had no pride. I ain't had enough. I'm going to get that. I'm going to get that. Terrific. I mean, you could be a heartbreak. You walk down the street breaking hearts the way you look. Very shot. He's the man who never had a chance until now. Rocky. His whole life was a million to one shot. His name is Sylvester Stallone, but you will always remember him as Rocky. Because because of how yeah it took me forever to get through that intro but with the way this show works I have seen Rocky it is probably one of my favorite movies and a movie that every time I see it I find something new I love about it Greg you specifically asked to be on this episode yeah I'm a big I didn't fan. invite you you're like you messaged me he's like can I be on that Rocky episode I'm like fuck yeah Nick this is on your shameless it is so well start it is no longer on my shameless but as of two days ago it was so let's start as always. With what you thought about it. All right. Um, so, Rocky never appealed to me growing up. I, you've it's a again because it is so well known. You've seen the parodies. You've seen the references. You like you pretty much know what the story is going yeah. into it. Um, and nothing about it appealed to me. Like I don't. I'm not that excited about boxing. I didn't see anything that said you have to go see this. That's fair. I get that. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first five, ten minutes, I'm like, yeah, okay. You know, it's what I expected. Um, I, excuse me, um, I was not expecting, not not only Rocky's character, but some of the other characters to be as well uh, thought out as they were, um, even like uh, what's it, Polly, right? You know, Polly's Polly. just Polly's an asshole throughout the entire thing. <laughs> yeah, Polly's terrible. Yeah, and but he's strangely likable though in the end of the day because you don't feel like he's ever being a jerk. Be 
like I, he's a he's an he's an asshole because that's his characteristic, but he's never trying to be hurtful. I don't think. Polly's flawed. He's he's clearly he's someone who's hurting, someone who didn't get, kind of get in in life. Uh, he had all sorts of these expectations, in, in a lot of ways that aren't very sympathetic. But um, as you kind of see Adrian kind of come out of her shell and, and and Rocky come up in his world, you know, you start to kind of empathize in the trio of characters and. Um, it's always been kind of funny because, like, I don't want to get too tangenty, but like with Pauly, he, he starts off as this tragic character, a side character in this film, and it becomes like comic relief in the later films. Yeah. Like, but we'll, uh, if we if we get to the sequels, I'll I'll delve into that. How that just gets okay. weirder and weirder. But uh, well, you've heard it right here. Greg is a forever guest on any Rocky sequel that we do. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> they're all on my shameless. So, um, what really. S- took Polly from a two-dimensional character to an incredibly deep character was when um, him and his sister have that confrontation towards the end of Polly's storyline, and he goes from yelling and just, okay, I'm an asshole, to he says, you were supposed to be nice well, to me. He's asking me for a job all the time, but you don't know nothing about fight. Are you going to say anything to him? What's to say? I just don't know what he wants from me. I don't want nothing from you. I don't want nothing from you. This ain't no charity case. Get out of my house. It's not just your house. You're no friend no more. Get out of my house, I just said. Don't talk to him like that. Both of you get out of my house. Yo. It's cold outside, Polly. I don't want you missing her. And I don't raise you to go with this scumbug. Yeah, come on! You wanna hit on me? Come on! I'll break both your arms so they don't work for you. That's right, I'm not good enough to meet with Gazzo! Woo! That's what I think of Gazzo! Now you're a big shot fighter on the way up, you don't even throw a crumb to your friend Paulie! When I go and get your meat every morning, you forgot that night I even give you my sister too! I am too, we say that! I'm a pig! this yeah. tragic, pained, like, the, you were supposed to be the one person that was nice to me, and and your heart breaks. Like, he's still an asshole, but you see all of this background with that one line that... He's got that, pathos. Yep. That made him interesting. And, you know, again, that's just one example of how well not only was the script written and... Um, clearly directed but uh what all of the actors brought to it uh to really make what stallone wrote come to life um it it was a character piece it wasn't a sports movie Mm -hmm. and i I wasn't expecting that and people often ask me did you know what you were making well you know you never know but amongst us though we said it in just a whisper we thought we were making something original and pure. Now, Rocky is a great boxing movie, but I like to think it was also a love story. 
Yeah. So, you know, about, boy, two unlikely people. And in one kiss, they're transformed. Adrian becomes, and remember, Sylvester wrote Adrian. This is his design from out of his ribs, so to speak. Adrian, she becomes his partner. She becomes a moral force, and she is forever in his corner. I'm glad you said that because uh, I second your feeling earlier about like having no appeal to the Rocky films. Like I'm not a sports fan. When younger, I like professional I, wrestling, and that's it. Yeah, like like I I always associated with the Rocky pictures is that these were films for sports fans. I never got through it in high school. I think later on in college, I actually got into it. When I finally saw them, I realized these are not about boxing at its right. core. It's yeah. about you know like you know it's about the spirit of these characters and triumphing and. While that gets a little ridiculous later on in the in the franchise, you know, uh, this film kind of really emphasized that it well. And the film, you know, is a direct reflection of the production too, because it's such a grind. I mean, this movie had like no budget. Stallone was broke. Um, you had a, a film that a lot of people didn't think would do well. It was just a B picture. They were shooting, and you know, and and I think a lot of the uh, the the kind of. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, grime of it and grind of it was uh, a direct reflection of just those involved. So it really, I think it had a lot of heart and soul put into it just from everyone trying to get it made. Oh, no, I completely agree. And, like, even just the fact that when Stallone, Stallone wrote it because he couldn't get an acting job, so he wrote something for himself. And even then, they didn't want him. Mm-hmm. They thought his accent was too thick. They didn't think he was good-looking enough and all these other things. But, no, you're right. For me, too, uh, sports films... I like them now. There's still some that I that, that I that I really like because I, I feel like a good sports film is a film that you don't have to like the sport to enjoy. Yeah, sure. And uh, I saw this film as a, as as a young kid. I saw them out of order, but my mom and dad very really liked them because my dad was actually kind of was a little bit of a boxing guy, and scenes of it kind of stuck with me. So like as an adult or sometime in high school, I bought a DVD of it, and that's when I fell in love with the story of Rocky. And the thing I like about Greg, you kind of touched on the the oeuvre of the franchise a little bit, and this is not really a spoiler, but like, there's one clear thesis statement that happens in this film that I think you can use to sum up the practically the entire franchise is that one little exchange between Mickey and Rocky near the beginning, when Mickey is like, "Hey, Rock, have you thought about retiring?" "No, I haven't. Think about it." That is the entire like. The entire the entire franchise is all about Rocky. Should I retire? Should I still be doing this? Mm-hmm. And ultimately not being able to because it's something that I don't know if it's out of love of the sport or something because he feels he has to do. Mm-hmm. It never quite happens because the original ending of the film was supposed to be Rocky throws the fight because he realizes he doesn't want to be a boxer. Okay, mm-hmm. a very different com- story. Historically, yeah. that would have completely changed things. Like just thinking I don't about know if it would have done as well, no. to be honest. It wouldn't, I don't think it would have been. I mean, had it ended with him winning, <laughs> I, I think it would have been not. Oops, spoiler. But <laughs> I'm so used to everyone having seen it. But uh, but uh, uh, We pretty much don't believe in spoilers on this show. Oh, okay, if I can say whatever. If you're listening to an episode about Rocky, if, we're, if you're listening to an episode about Rocky, expect Rocky to be spoiled. I, think that, <laughs> I also think that, that, that anecdote, considering the franchise, that little anecdote about the, free, the series is, is common knowledge at this point. <laughs> like, it's like, if you know Rocky, you know what, how the first one ends because it's right. not how Rocky 2 ends, you know, and like, the, there's like that. You're whole not getting there. a rematch. I don't want one. 
there you go. So, but, Are yeah. you telling me that you bet in the fight in Rocky Three and that you bet against Rocky? <laughs> See, Nick hasn't even seen them, and know, he knows what happens. Lang was pretty rad, you know. But <laughs> um, since, since with, with the anecdotal of type of this show does, and uh, Greg, you've already touched on something I wanted to talk on. So if you guys don't mind, yeah. I want to go back and touch on something he mentioned. Yeah. You mentioned the grit and the grime of this film. And for I've, there's a subgenre, and granted, I know this film takes place in Philadelphia, but hear me out. There's a subgenre of film that I like. It, usually, usually low-budget horror and exploitation films. I call it the grit and the grime of New York. And this is the most New York film sh- shot in Philadelphia that I've ever seen. <laughs> uh, because the thing I said about this film, this film has texture all over it not even just the fil- the lower film stock they use so there's you know there's grain everywhere every scene of this film has got texture every down from what they're wearing the locations they choose to shoot in everywhere is a character even just that one little scene between rocky and his boss which i cannot think of his name right now but it's joe spinell from the from maniac um uh, you know, they're just at like some little cheesesteak place, you know, just sipping on coffee. And he's like, Pats, you know, I believe. Yeah. When he was just, I don't, I don't remember the exact line of dialogue where he's like, here's some money for training expenses. It's a small little throwaway scene, but they've got a really great location. Uh, the, the use of fluorescent lighting, yeah. it just, it f- has that gritty and grimy feel. Every scene of this movie is textured, and it feels believable. Even his apartment, which just feels like a set, feels like a real location. Yeah. Speaking I, on I a was... meta, just so, sorry, but on a meta moment there, actually, um, kind of like speaking to the grime of it, there's a bit in it that really aligned the film that really sends it home because of how true it is. Like when Rocky is is upset and he's fighting with Mickey in his apartment, he's like, "This stinks." This breath, you know, he's just he's getting angry at something kind of innocuous, but that that room actually did was foul. It really was, apparently. Yeah. I mean, that kind of lends to it, I think. Took you long enough to get here. Ten years you've gone to my house. Huh? What's the matter? You don't like my house? My house stink? That's right, it stinks! I ain't no favor from you! Don't fall around me! Talk about your prime. What about my prime, Nick? At least you had a prime! I ain't had no pride, I ain't a nut. Legs are going, everything is going, nobody's getting no nut. Guy comes up, offers me a fight. Big deal, wanna fight the fight? Yeah, I'll fight the big fight. I wouldn't wanna fight that big fight, it was gonna happen to me. I'm gonna get that! I'm gonna get that! And you wanna be ringside and see? Do you? You wanna help me out? Help? Do you wanna see me get my face kicked in? Legs ain't working, nothing's working. They go, go on, fight the chair. Yeah, I'll fight him. My face kicked in. Are you coming around here? You want to move in here with me? Come on here, come to my house. Real nice, come on in the middle. It stinks. Two place stinks. Oh, when, when he invites Adrian to sit on the couch with him, and it's covered with beer bottles and newspapers, and, you know, you can tell that he's just filling the silence with this rambling but he's like it's a good couch it's you know like like it, it that and then again when he's fighting um in in the apartment like he he throws out these little lines that shows how kind of that really illustrates that uh he's trying to prove that he's not a bum you know that that he he is kind of ashamed of how he lives and and where he's ended up but he's fighting so hard against it 
um, in the beginning when, you know, he's, he's looking in the mirror and he has those pictures of himself as a kid. He's, he's got his own self-reflection, literally. And then the, the reminder of who he was before he made all the choices he made that led to this point and takes it off. It's like, here's who I am now. Here's who I was. And there's this look of shame on his face. It's funny that you mentioned uh, Philly in the silence because that's always the way, that's just a testament to how charming the Rocky character is because that whole scene could have come off very rapey <laughs> had there would have been a less a charming character because you never got like it was bad intentions from Rock's part at all even him inviting her up yeah. because I always took it as him um, filling the silence with talking because I remember uh, watching this movie in high school and I was showing then an ex girlfriend the movie and she hated it. She was like, he won't stop talking. And she thought it was just Stallone being a bad actor and constantly improvising. I always took it as an intentional character choice where he talks because he knows that, you know, he's not a catch and he can't let his looks and everything else do the talking. So he just, he fills the silence so that way he doesn't have to be rejected. I agree. That's the way I've, I've always viewed it. That's how you I know, and, mean, like the ice rink bit where he's like talking yeah. like, yeah. Worst it's, it's first date ever. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I thought it was actually kind of sweet and charming. Like, Grant, that's only I, ten I, minutes. I, but I, I agree. I mean, like that also is, you know, that's the the kind of chemistry between Rocky and Adrian at that point. And it kind of shows something. That, you know, I mentioned earlier about this story being about all of them coming up in this. You know, her coming out of her shell, and that's him helping her, and then later on her helping him. You know, so it's like a mutual kind of relationship. Did anyone else catch at the beginning of the film? Like, and I didn't catch it until this most recent viewing, and this is the reason I love this movie because I keep noticing little things. Um, before he, before Adrian's introduced for the first time, he's practicing what he's gonna say to her in the mirror about how this food's got more flies than you know this one's got more. Mo-. Like, I always I was wondering oh. why he was saying that. He's practicing what he's gonna say to I her because he's nervous. That. Oh my god, no! He's developing the joke because he wants to tell mm-hmm. her a joke every single day, and mm. I'll come yep. up with a good joke for you tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like the reason I think this movie works so well for me is because of the character. Rocky is a is a. He's a brute with a with a soul. Because the reason I don't like most sports movies is because, like, I can't say this movie doesn't have cliches. It does. I feel like, though, this movie might have created, not created, but been the kickstarting point for some of those cliches. But a lot of them have, like, you know, the very tough, intense character who is going to motivate his team. And it's all about masculinity and brah. This movie is, like, you know, before his big fight, his catalyst is, I can't do this. Yeah. And I... I think why the Rocky character worked for me um, is you you've seen the the flawed hero over and over again. You've seen yeah, the yeah. dumb jock over and over again. But Rocky never felt like a trope to me. His his version of dumb, his version of unintelligent, uh, in innocently unintelligent but frustrated at the same time um, had so much depth to it. And with little lines that are peppered throughout it and the way that it was brought to life, that made the entire difference between me liking and not liking this movie. Yeah, I was actually just going to say, I don't think we ever said, you never said whether or not you liked the movie because we interrupted you, but you did (laughs) like the movie. I did like it. Sorry. Okay. Um, we were, you were talking about uh, shots in the beginning or things that you caught in the beginning. And one thing that I noticed um, was from the very first shot, 
you should know that this is a redemption story. Like, even if you had never heard of Rocky. Because that opening shot is of the mural of Jesus in the yeah. boxing ring, and under it it says resurrection. It's a little on the nose, but it works. <laughs> Totally on the nose. Um, yeah. That's, that's some something... academic on the nose right there. Well, the thing is, that opening is so on the nose, but yet they do some very subtle things during that opening that I love. You know, like the, the very beginning of the film, which I wonder if it was added afterwards, you know, where Rocky's coming across the screen. That's all well and good. I always forget that's in there because what I, what always sticks with me is the opening film has this significant lack of glory to it. You know, the fight is filmed in a lot of wide shots. It doesn't look too spectacular. It's not being shot for for effect. You can hear the crowd and everything and how they're just not having this fight. Yeah, and then we go in the back. And we go in the back and we see, you know, these two dudes who got the shit beat out of them. No, like, hey, good match or anything. Yeah. They're like, one's drinking a beer and they're just waiting for their money. And, you know, he, the, the guy, promoter straight up, it's like, you know, here's your cut. Here's all the money I'm taking out of it because of these reasons. Yeah. You know, there's no glory. And, and, and Rocky's reaction is, when can I be here again? Yeah. And what sticks with me is, the to me, the real opening credits of the film is after that when they're bringing up all the titles and they just subtly bring up Rocky as if it's a, 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 a an actor's name when he's walking down the street. It's, you know, Sylvester Stallone, John yeah. G. Allison, Rocky, and it just goes away. There's no glory to the titles yeah. either. You see where the movie begins and where it ends and the uh, the big spectacular that it becomes. <laughs> That's one thing. So it was on the nose as that shot of Jesus was, I like how... How almost uh, um, an afterthought the credits were, because that's how the character is. Even the credits are blue collar. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's not wrong. And then like just these little things I love about this film, like early on in the uh, uh, when you know when he's buying the 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 food for his fish, who knows for his turtles, and you know, he's like, hey Rock, you got to pay for that. He's like, you know, I'm going to crime. Don't pay instantaneously. <laughs> cut to him working for a fucking mobster yeah. breaking people's thumbs for money <laughs> like and it's not and and he, the irony part. is not lost on him oh completely I, oh no like like there's just little things that and um you know bill conti's score while repetitive because i think they keep using the same musical cues throughout it's it's very effective <laughs> I watched the movie alone the other day because Amanda was at work, and by the end of the film, I was actually bawling. <laughs> like when Adrian came out to watch him at the watching him fight, and she turns her back. Niagara Falls. Niagara Falls, Frankie Darling. Niagara Falls, Frankie Angel. Yeah, to quote Scrooge, Niagara Falls. <laughs> yeah. And, and like, and the thing is, I don't mind that. I know that some people get pissed off when they cry during a movie. You know, I went to school for film. I get the whole idea of emotional manipulation. And if I feel it coming, I just let it go. But, you know, there's so much sincerity to the characters. And with that, you know, I'm not talking about the big, you know, gotta fly now theme. I'm talking about the little musical cues throughout. They really work. <laughs> Somebody heard that and thought, this needs the lyrics in case you're not sure what this montage is supposed to represent. It's almost like the, the I've always, yeah, I agree. It's almost like the lyrics were like, uh, like were working lyrics just so you had an idea and they got used to it and just forgot to take Rocky's it Rocky is running, punching a side of beef. <laughs> Look at there's a dog now. Bloodkiss. Hey, Bloodkiss. <laughs> you notice in the credits it says Bloodkiss Stallone. 
dog. <laughs> so, so is the dog the acting dog's name? Dog is Budkiss. Butkus. No, no, the, oh. the, the character's name is Dog. The dog's actual name is Budkiss Stallone. It was Stallone's actual dog. Oh, okay. So then it's so didn't they name? I think it's just so that dog would respond. He wasn't. He wasn't an acting dog. I assume it was Stallone's actual dog. So he probably called him Budkiss just so he would respond. Then it should have been Budkiss Stallone as himself. I I agree. Like it should have been a little knock, <laughs> nod in the wig. I'm gonna name you Budkiss Stallone, and then he looks at the camera. I'm, tr- I'm trying. I'm, I'm like I'm shamelessly trying to Google this this fact, but I believe oh, he tried yeah, selling Budkiss. Like apparently you have not listened to the show because I Google things all the time. Okay. In the episode. Okay. Good. Good. I'm not. So I, if I and I could be wrong, but I remember like he was such in a dour place. He tried to sell Budkiss. Yes. Prior to I, making uh, they the talk film. about that. Like, they talk about that in the documentary. Like. Thing is, like, I grew up with Stallone as being, <clears throat> in my opinion, granted, this opinion has changed since then, as the less interesting Arnold Schwarzenegger. Sure. Uh, I always say less interesting because Schwarzenegger had the accent and he was Terminator, and at the time, Stallone's movies weren't as good. Yeah. However, like, watching the documentary on the disc and just warning what I have... Oop, I dropped my fidget spinner. Um, <laughs> warning what I have about Stallone... Uh, it's gone for good now. I can't grab it. Um, I have the, learned the deep depths. Of I have desk. learned that he's a far more interesting director and actor than I ever gave him credit for. And to find out that he wrote this film, and I've read the script since then, and it's really passionately written. Like it doesn't feel like some big brute wrote it. Like it, it felt like someone with a soul wrote it. Because like you know, I thought Rocky of Stallone. Has a soul. I, yeah, it, it I, shows. I, I thought of Stallone, whenever I thought of Stallone, I thought of Demolition Man, right. which I love Demolition Man, but <laughs> very different is, character. <laughs> it is a very different character, and that's the type of Rocky or Stallone that I was used to. Mm-hmm. And um, it was it was really interesting listening to him. You know this 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 kid who got into acting because he was he wanted to act. He was passionate about it. You know this big, you know brutish young young uh, Italian guy who wants to be an actor which is you know normally a career for those who are a little more soulful and he felt he had a lot to prove and I wish he would have gotten more roles like this and while I enjoyed the entire Rocky franchise the biggest my biggest thing the reason I still think this is the best of the franchise is there's a quality to it that when Stallone was directing, while he was a good, he was a really good, competent director, John G. Avelson brings out a lot more of um, that grit that you're talking about and that, that dourness. And granted, later on when Rocky has money, you don't need that grit. But, you know, I don't know. I guess I don't know what I'm trying to say, but there's just a quality to this film that makes it so damn rewatchable that I, I, I could realistically put the movie in again right now and not feel upset about it. <laughs> and I just watched it the other day. I had the, the, the fortune of um, seeing it in the theater for the first time a couple years Ooh. ago. It, in Atlanta here, we have the Fox Theater. It's like this huge uh, theater. Multi-purpose. I think it's multi-purpose. I've actually been for anything but a movie, but, but most of the time I think it's shows and, and theater. But they did a, a, a brief film festival where they played Rocky, and that's an experience in and of itself. Um, did it play well? Yeah, it went well. It was great. And I had just seen, prior to that, I had seen Creed. Um, in the theater, in a full theater, and uh, just Creed is great. Creed was amazing, but but I, the reason I'm bringing this up is because the films, these films have such a, an incredible audience presence to them 
especially if you see them for the first time. Like, I mean, like, I, it's just it, the vibe you get. I mean, seeing it singular, seeing it at home, that's totally fine. But I, if anyone out there has an opportunity to see any Rocky film, especially if you've never seen it before, with people who haven't seen it before, see it in a theater. Because it, 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 it sifts through the audience. It really gets to them. It's, it's incredible. I had, people, a fun- I had people cheering at the end of Creed in my theater and that was awesome <laughs> now they didn't yeah they didn't quite have that reaction in the rocky rescreening at the at the fox but you know it's because it's a 40 some year old film everyone right. knows but it, but it was just a classic rocky has a strange ending too because like the period I, I ends mm-hmm. yeah it a period ends and like they have their their hugging not like a real hug but you know like they need to say something to each other type moment and it was kind of lackluster but not really, because I, you know there's excitement for for Rocky because he 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 went 13 fucking rounds with the world champion. Um, but no, Creed definitely has a more yeah ending. I I used the word abrupt. It like yes, it ends and you're expecting at least one more scene. Mm-hmm. Um, I want I would want to watch it a couple more times before I really throw out an opinion on whether or not i think that works um but i was yeah it was like oh credits okay we can do it that well, way and, and that's and that's the difference between uh avilton's directing and stallone's directing stallone is a boxing guy he loves it he did all the choreography for all the fight scenes actually by the end of the film um it's funny it's actually reversed injuries uh the act uh, uh carl weathers had a broken nose and Stallone had had bruised ribs. It's funny how their 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 injuries have switched because they're really hitting each other. Yeah. And when when Stallone takes over directing from two all the way to five, I think. Uh, John actually, fun fact: John G. Ellison came back for five. Oh, Des- okay. Despite when, when Stallone yeah, directs. Yeah. I don't mind five, but uh, Stallone directs two through four, and you can tell his how much more he likes boxing because he puts a lot more emphasis on the boxing matches like it's almost kind of interesting how in the in the first one boxing is almost like treated like a montage you see some bits and moments from all 13 rounds but it's not like this big culmination of a fight right um and uh i don't i think it works but i agree the first time i saw it i'm like that's it that that's where this movie ends (laughs) well it i agree when your first time you're watching the film that it is a bit abrupt but I think what makes it works is Rocky 2. Because I've always treated Rocky ah. 1 and 2 as this one overarching story. Like, you could do away with Rocky 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, if you want to call Creed 7, and, and just do it, these two. It, it's, it's one, like, it's like this one, like, one epic about Rocky. So Actually, from, like... The- Quentin, Tar- Quentin Tarantino agrees. He, when he worked at a video store, he on a tape, he cut together Rocky 1 and 2 on one master tape and would just... It was... That was Rocky to him. He would... watch <laughs> yeah. Rocky, he'd Rocky watch that ult- big master tape. Like this ultimate cut of Rocky. Like, I've... I've- yeah. I've, I've definitely, like, when I'm editing here, I definitely sometimes fantasize about just, like, getting the two together and chopping up myself and see what would happen. Uh, there is there is a slight dead, increase so. in, in quality, like, in production quality. Like, so it might be a yeah. little jarring, but, but they do literally, I mean, end. Rocky ends, and then Rocky 2 immediately starts right there. Um, and, okay. And a lot of the films, a lot of later films in the series do that. They kind of, you know, they recap what happened last for five minutes, the last five minutes of the film. And, and Previously on, on Rocky 3. Precisely, yeah. <laughs> and it, it, I mean, it gets campier and campier, but, but like, you know, for the first two films, it would work pretty nice. But, um, yeah, uh, I've always been, I've always wondered how that would go. Like, a, like a, God, that would be like a four-hour long film. 
Um, hey, Greg, yeah. you you could probably get that plane somewhere in Atlanta. Maybe. If only you had Maybe. some kind of connection. <laughs> <laughs> Nick, it sounded like you had something you wanted to say before. I don't remember. Probably. Uh, well, I was going to ask. Greg, you might find this story funny because you know my mom. Aww. Have I ever told you my mom's Rocky story? No. <laughs> okay, this is funny. Nick, you'll still find it enjoyable, but since Greg's actually met my mom, it might be funnier <laughs> for him. She's the best. Um... um my mom saw Rocky Four in theaters, and you know Rocky Four is you know the very on the nose Russia versus America, Ivan Drago, Drago. versus Rocky Balboa. <laughs> See, you haven't even seen the Rocky movies, and you know who Ivan Drago yep. is. If he does, um, he does. It's great. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you know, and uh, so the end of the movie when Rocky's having his big redemption fight against Drago, and is you know finally because the match begins with Drago beating the shit out of Rocky, and Rocky comes back and starts throwing punches. My mom gets up in a crowded theater and goes, "Kick his ass!" <laughs> <laughs> Uh, she said she was mortified, and I was like, if I could go back in time to any moment, yeah, I could meet Jim Morrison, I could meet Albert Einstein, I want to go back and find you seeing Rocky Four, and just experience my mom getting up and yelling in the theater. Mm-hmm. If I had a power of time travel, that's what I'd use it on. Nice. Nice. Amazing. Speaking of, of Rocky Four, Rocky Four is like this very, uh, uh, are we okay to delve into a sequel, or are you saving totally. it for a later date? Okay. We, we have no containment rules on this show. We okay. talk about our tangents are our thing. Our Dark City episode is an hour and 40 minutes. We maybe talked about Dark City for 20 minutes. <laughs> okay, fair enough. So, so what's real interesting is that after Rocky 1 and 2, you know, they, the series got, starts to get gradually sillier. I mean, like, by Rocky 3, because by Rocky 3, yeah. it's like, this didn't need to exist. But there's enough material no. here that we can work with. And you got, you know, Mr. T was, was a big hit, or I don't know if he was a big hit at the time from the A-Team, or if he was coming on the scene, but, like, you know, they had this big component for him, and I guess enough, uh, they could bring Apollo back and, and, and have him become a supporting character, and, like... Hulk Hogan was also in that movie. Yeah, Thunderlips. As yeah. Thunderlips. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And <laughs> see, see, it gets ridiculous because, like, it's, you know, Apollo Creed. That's, like, that's, a, that's an awesome name for a boxer, right? And mm, then you go, strong. you know, Clever Lang. I'm like, yeah, that's still pretty, you know, that's, you know, that's pretty good. And then Clubber. Thunderlips, it's like, all right, hold on. And then, <laughs> um, but, by, but by Rocky IV, Rocky isn't broke anymore. Uh, he's got two nope. Lamborghinis, a mansion, a robot. <laughs> he's not. <laughs> he has a robot. And, yes. So the film is very confused in how it's like it's clearly um, reaching the point of being tapped creatively, but it's also. Um, but you're also like kind of questioning, like, is Rocky that sympathizable anymore? Like, what do we? <laughs> and the only thing that's keeping um, it together was the was the you know Cold War fears, you know. So you had Rocky <laughs> representing the West, and you know you got Draga representing the East. I mean, literally. You know, having them go at it, but it's the silliest movie because if, if you revisit it, like rather than having moments of character development, it's just a lot of montages. Like they had like three pop songs. It's in very it. of its time. Exactly. That's the I think richer. I, yeah. Yeah. That's the exactly. I, that's the reason I think I enjoy Five because like he's broke mm-hmm. and he is concussed and can't fight anymore and you he, know? it's sympathetic again. So and then. You know, Creed pretty much takes everything I liked about the first two movies and, you know, just has a fresh breath come in. But, yeah. Plus, the thing I think that the other films are missing that this film does so well is the photography is so beautiful in this film. I like that, you know, they use a lot of long, pondering, wide shots, and it's uh, the way they use as much natural light as they can or, or recreation of natural light. And 
Um, their Steadicam stuff was was really great because it was like this is it's claimed to be the first film to use Steadicam, but I think there's some dispute on that. But it's one of the early Steadicam films, and yeah. I I appreciated I, that you could see the 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 camera rig when he's being interviewed in the freezer uh, and the yep. news reporter grabs him and you have like, it's like clearly this like old pipe and, and <laughs> grind tightener, yep. you know, rig that I'm like, Oh, that's, that's fun. I didn't, I did not notice Dear that. Nerd. I need to go see that. So, so when <laughs> she's think, interviewing him in the meat shop, you can see, yeah. the rig? Oh my God. You yeah. can see the, the camera guy and there's somebody behind him with like a shop light, just holding yep. it up above the camera. <laughs> yep. And then, um, I also love that you know Lloyd Lloyd Kaufman's two cameos in the film. He's the drunk that Rocky that he, carries. That he picks him up, and I only yep. I knew it going into it because you posted the thing on Facebook, and he's wearing the same outfit, like in both of those clips. So clearly, he, yep. he is the Barney of, of that. And like you, you see that you see that clip of him, and you can't not see that it's Lloyd Kaufman because <laughs> it's it's just a more youthful Lloyd Kaufman. <laughs> And there's a couple. I, I I wrote down some thoughts when I was watching the movie. I have a lot of um, lines that I that I really liked and res- resonated with me. But the one that I really just need to mention because it amuses me is in the in in the gym later on when he's training. There's a sign that says "No kissing in the gym, locker room," and I want to know what the significance of this is. That's amazing. <laughs> like Rocky's there taping up his, or maybe taking off the tape of his fist and behind him on a pole it says no kissing in gym locker room hey you crazy kids so there must have been an issue with this at some point because they had to hang a sign up for it you know one thing I did notice on the topic of signs is you know earlier we were talking about how much he's he's walking around and how how um, uh, how many layers there are to all the sets yeah is in a lot of his Wandering around town, bopping around, uh, you know, you can see we how much. Got to bop back to Coney Island. How much of boxing is is his life as he just walks? But in the background of oh, many, many, many too. shots, yeah. are posters for matches, and it yep. shows how important boxing is to the city. Presumably, yeah, or even just you know, in his in his own apartment, he's got the po- uh Another little on the nose reference was the the boxer Rocky Marciano, right. which was the bo- which was the, the the boxer that Stallone loosely based this film off of. Yeah. Um, you know, Rocky's got his idols. Like he's got his mirror where he sees himself. And he sees the pictures of of himself as a kid, and then he's got his idol on the wall, which he strives to be. Who he which, was, who he is, and who he hopes to be. And you know, through through a freak luck, where somehow Apollo Pro, Apollo Creed has a book full of boxers. They even talk about in the in the features how dumb that is, but they just need an excuse how they could have found Rocky. You know, he's going the Italian stallion. That one little choice in his life is the whole reason he's where he's at. It wasn't because he was better than anyone else. Yep. He was just there. I want to put some more. I put that in my notes, and how I want to put more thought into that is. The, the deeper significance of the fact that this character got his shot and got his redemption story based solely on the name that he chose for himself for seemingly no reason. Like, they yeah, mentioned the, that, that, like, you know, oh, I don't know, I was it was like eight years ago, and I just thought, oh, that was kind of cool. <laughs> I don't remember yeah. the line exactly, but that and choice just, got him his redemption. And some of the lines that Rocky says throughout it all, like, have that same vibe of... You know, 
Uh, it's uh, whatever. Like you one know, of my favorite being. You know? It's Thanksgiving to you, but to me, it's Thursday. Uh, right. it, I was gonna reference that. I love it. <laughs> or uh, uh, my, one of my favorite, my favorite line in the movie. It's not, you know, uh, why do you fight? Because a singer dance, I can't singer dance. You know, that's a great line. But my favorite yeah. line in the entire movie is at the end when they're about to go out and do his fight. He's got that big fucking robe on, and, uh, and he's like, "What's with the robe?" And he's like, "Paulie gets three grand, and I get the robe." And uh, Mickey goes, "Shrewd." <laughs> <laughs> Can can we talk about Burgess Meredith for a little bit? Oh, please. How freaking am- and I I love him. He's in several Twilight Zone episodes, which Michael, you know, my love for the Twilight Zone. Oh, mine too. Um, uh, and you know it. It's no Clash of of the Titans, Burgess Meredith, but it is still an amazing Bur- Burgess Meredith. <laughs> he was nominated for Best Supporting Actor for this film. Was he? Mm-hmm. And then like, there's little things too, like as. As a professional wrestling fan, there's a lot of crossover between boxing and professional wrestling, so there's a lot that I get. And there's, like, little nice references that I appreciate where, like, Burgess Meredith, I think it, the line is, um, uh, 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 he put this vegetation on my ear. And if you don't know boxing professional wrestling, it means uh, he's got a cauliflower, cauliflower ear. <laughs> and it's like, you know, there's just, just te- like, that's going back to the texture. They don't choose to explain things yep. or, you know, they it's like you have to just kind of, Roll with the punches, and Burgess Meredith is See so good. See what you good. did there. <laughs> Roll with Thank the punches. <laughs> yeah, Burgess Meredith is so good because even he's a flawed character. Where like once Rocky gets his his chance to fight, who's at his door? Yeah. complimenting his apartment. I'm so- <laughs> I'm sorry. Take me back. He has his own need for redemption. He talks about how he was, you know, the good old days and how he's now kind of sees himself. I love that he's got all the pictures in his pocket, too. He's like, look at how I looked in this fight. Yeah. Yep. Oh, it's so good. It's usually a lot of Burgess's roles, you get kind of this, like, kind of goofiness to him. And. I found it refreshing to see him in this really gritty, serious role. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Greg, I feel like me and Nick were kind of um, bombarded that part of the conversation a little bit. <laughs> Do you have any thoughts? Uh, nah. Espe- I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, especially around the around lines that you might like or well, Rocky. The one I was gonna afforded a the one, opportunity. The one I was gonna spun out was the was the Thanksgiving one. I'm like, oh, it's so timely. I'm gonna chime up. Oh, no, but you need to. I am gonna celebrate this. I am gonna celebrate this Thanksgiving by chucking my turkey out into the alley. <laughs> There you go, and be, just be mean, be mean to your sister. The la- She'll love it. It's not as punctual, but the last bit, I think, of Paolo says to Rocky, uh, right before the film ends, ain't going to be no rematch, don't want one. Um, yeah. yeah. It's fun. I mean, it, I mean that might, may not have been as impactful then, but I think just considering how elongated things got, it, it makes sense now. I mean, it's just a never-ending thing. Paolo Creed versus Italian Stallion. It sounds like a damn monster movie. <laughs> there needs to... That's Apollo Creed. That needs to be a mock poster someone makes. If someone makes Tall Weathers versus like, this, like mutant stallion. <laughs> like if, if someone could do like them like punching like you know that freeze frame with them punching each other from what is it Rocky two, uh, or what, Rocky three over like a cityscape but make them into like Godzilla style monsters wearing their trunks. I would frame that in my apartment. <laughs> 
right next to my my Playboy centerfold of Marge Simpson. Oh my! Oh, <laughs> I I still think from while we're on Rocky Three, my favorite bit is the is the friendship montage of them rocking down the be- the L.A. beaches, oh. leaping into each other's arms. It's just it's just like it's just. The brimming with vitamin D. I love it. <laughs> the, the, it's just such just... a fun, it's just a hilarious kind of like a contradiction to the first two films where like these polar opposites and they're you know they're they're these adversaries, but now they're just like bestest buds and that's just kind of a, <laughs> a testament to how silly things got. But I feel it's a like great those bit. choices were those choices, those montage choices were still long going. You know what worked in the first movie? <laughs> Montages. <laughs> And I was thinking about this too, like how the, the how the direction of the first two films is kind of consistent, and then they get you know more and more over the top. And I feel like this is not like an unobvious thought, but like when those first two movies are made, Stallone had nothing; mm-hmm. he could relate more to it. Mm-hmm. When when Rocky got more rich and more powerful, Stallone did too, mm-hmm. you know. So he was reflecting the life that he was living, but you know it's. Getting a little existential. We're talking about films that Nick still hasn't seen, but uh, I think I, I, I read somewhere that I read somewhere that uh, I don't know how true this is, but like Stallone would make a Rocky film every time he had a career slump. So he'd have like so every time there was like uh, a low box office draw, you'd get Rocky three, and then like hey yo, let's we'll do four. Rocky because Rocky five was you know he he goes on record saying that like it's his least favorite film. He regrets it. He says it was creatively tapped, and it might have been like uh, an exacerbation of that kind of tendency. I don't know if any truth to that, but I mean, him not liking Rocky Five is, is true. But I don't know about the box office slump thing. Uh, sure, be amusing, but and unless someone else has got a topic they want to talk about, I want to talk about that. We talked a little bit about how each character, even flawed, is likable to an extent, except for the fucking driver who drives around uh, the mob, the mob boss. I wanted to talk about Joe Spinell as the mob boss. Mm-hmm. Because one, I love Joe Spinell anyways because he's in one of my all-time favorite horror movies, Maniac, which is a a character study of a psychopath. But uh, even him, you know, being this guy who's you know collecting money from people that are, like you know he's hiring rock to go break people's thumbs and shit, he's still a relatively likable. Yeah, you I get know. The feeling <laughs> with the exception the fe- of the one scene where he is talking about, hey, why didn't you break this guy's thumbs? And even then, he's doing it in a relatively pleasant way like yeah. take the word mob boss out of that conversation and he's just a cool dude who's yeah, looking out you, for his friend you get the you get the feeling like he's like the cool boss at work who was who like has to talk to you because he has to but doesn't really want to <laughs> like you get the feeling that like nothing you honestly get the feeling from from rock's boss that like he's not He's not collecting this money because it's anything personal. They owe him money. He doesn't want to lose clout. You know, he's going to send someone out to get you. And instead of, like, having Rocky kill you, he's just going to break a thumb, you know. And, like, I don't know. You get the vibe that, like, if you were to run into him in the street, he'd still give you, like, and you owed him money. Like, you know, or he had your thumb broken or something. He'd still, like, give you a hug and be, like, no hard feelings. Yeah. Right, yeah. I so think You I, know that's how it has to be. <laughs> I think it's the strangest thing about that character because even they even delve with him into Rocky Two, and there doesn't seem to be any, like, repercussions or, like, anything that comes from that. It's, like, he, he still he still grows into, like, this, like, almost, like, seedy uncle. Not seedy, like, lovable but questionable uncle kind of role and, like, you know, patting him on the back. And it's, like, this dude was, like... This dude was evil. Like, I mean, we don't talk about it, but this definitely is some real sketch. Are you going to be at the fight? And then, Ringside. And then, yeah. And then he, like, you know, and then we just don't see him ever again after Rocky Two. 
which likely because he passed away, unfortunately. But like, uh, but he, but ha- like I couldn't imagine that character being br- dragged into like the the post Rocky Two era. As like, yeah, they've just been strange. Um, so, so fan film about what happens to that character after Rocky II? Yeah, I'll possibly. direct it, because fun fact, Nick, well, Greg, you knew this. Nick, from the Darkness Theater, my lead character was based on that actor. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? Nice. <laughs> yeah, because uh, it was heavily inspired by the film Maniac, which he starred in, and... Um, but no, if you if you go back and watch From the Darkness Theater and you see the way that they're dressed with those tinted glasses and everything, you could fucking totally see it. <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll get Michael Denk to star in this film about Rocky's boss. There you go. What happened to him. Or we can just, you know, re-edit From the Darkness Theater to make it a problem. That is what happened. He just got yes. really into... Use the miracle became of... became a horror host. And... The miracle yeah, of technology, just digitally insert... <laughs> A CGI right. Joe Spinell into the movie. <laughs> yeah. In the role. <laughs> and, Sorry, uh, Michael. Uh, <laughs> Just can, we, can we also talk about for a second how great Rocky sweaters were? Yeah. Yeah, totally. I, like, every scene, I'm like, oh, I'd, I'd wear that sweater so hard. Yep. After their date in particular, and he had that tight thing with the low V and... And like, it like, so... like the the top, like the bottom part went up so high and yeah. everything it was, poop. and like, I I love that he wore the full leather jacket too. Like he yeah. didn't care. Like it was all about practicality with him. I, and uh, I commented so... to my wife, who uh, I found out is really into the Rocky movies. I had no idea. Then <laughs> um, we watched it together last night. Um, but I I commented that, you know, he's wearing Chuck Taylors for a lot of it and. How, you know, nowadays those are really cool, but back then that was like a sign that you didn't have a lot of money. They were yeah, the economy like, shoe. So that's something that didn't doesn't translate over time necessarily to everyone. Yeah, and like those shoes are not good for working out. No. So like and that's just all he could afford. Yeah. They, there's a You guys are all familiar with the filmmaker John Landis, correct? Mm-hmm. Yep. His wife is a costume designer and she's also a costume historian. And she one time said that costumes are character. And you look at the way that Rocky's dressed in any scene, you can never hear him speak, and you'd get an idea of what he's like. Totally. You know, he wears the leather jacket, uh, which, you know, kind of shows his tough side, but what he wears underneath of it is all com- completely practicality. The Converse yeah. at the time is because that's what he could afford. The sweatpants you know, you... that have been worn through in spots. <laughs> that are yeah, gross like, as can be a... to look at. <laughs> it's just nasty. It's, it's a good couch, you know. Mm-hmm. It's a good couch. <laughs> Can we talk about his turtles, Cuff and Link? <laughs> Cuff and um. Link. <laughs> I think in Creed, he might have new turtles. Like, I don't know. Like, Does anyone remember? I remember. I, I, I remember he had turtles. I, re- I just vaguely remember there being an aquarium in the back. I'm going to look at it. I think one of them was named Apollo, I thought. Named Apollo? <laughs> Maybe that's a little on the nose, but like... Um, yeah, I just I love that like that something else adds to Rocky's character. He's got a he's got a soft side. He cares about animals, and you know, he like you can tell by the you know granted seventies there's not a whole lot of options for pet food. It seems like he'd buy he he'd rather pay a little extra to get his foods better his pets better food yeah. than he'd eat. Well, I wonder if he was always into animals or if he got into animals because of trying to spend time with Adrian in the pet shop. That's a good question. I never thought about that. I, if I remember correctly, and there's a good chance I'm not remembering correctly, 
Um, I believe he bought the turtles on the first day that he saw her in there. Yes, that he sees he her in there, in, goes in, the and buys the turtle. Yep. I bought the mountain, which I had to take out because he kept falling. I get the impression that he saw her through the window, came in, mm-hmm. and bought yeah. the turtles just to interact with her, rather than, I'm going to go buy some turtles, oh, look who's here. You know what's great about Rocky's turtles? Is Mickey's reaction to him? Watch this. <laughs> what the hell? Good, have you never seen a turtle before, Mickey? Can't good soup. Real quick, can confirm. Just Googled it. There are in fact turtles in Creed. There's a screenshot in Stallone's place. There's two. Even, awesome. I hope it's Cuffin Link. It's got to be Cuffin Link the sixth or something. <laughs> I, I don't know. know how long Thank you, Google. Plays, but definitely not as long as the Rocky franchise. So. I also like how Budkiss, like, he, he had his big scene with, Hey, Budkiss! And, like, I don't think we ever saw the dog again. No, that's it. Like, I was expecting to see him running with the dog or something, and... Another montage. Can we talk yeah. about Budkiss, the name? What? <laughs> right. Is that Latin for something? Like, what is Budkiss? Uh, it's B-U-T-E-K-I-S, I think. I, I believe it's Latin for, um, sucking to up. kiss the butt. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I love slow. the way he says his name. <laughs> like, and I love when Rocky, like Rocky, comes into a room. He has to command that room, even if it's animals that can't speak to him. You gotta say hi to a birdie. He gotta say hi to Bud Kid. Like he knows everyone. Everyone knows him. Yep. And like you know, he's just walking down the street doing his boxing thing, and like, hey yo. And then uh, actually, you know? his. His brother Frank Stallone, who became a singer, is also in this film. He's one of the singers singing on the, on the on the street corner. Okay. Um, if anyone has seen the movie Staying Alive, it's that really homoerotic movie of, <laughs> with uh, 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 John Travolta. It's a sequel to Saturday Night Fever. Okay. Um, all the songs in that movie that um, Frank Stallone wrote and performed. So he's he's a singer. He looks just like Sly, but he's a singer. <laughs> Have, have either of you seen I'm the, I'm the, uh, Fred Claus? No, that, should I? It's a Vince Vaughn Christmas movie. It's ridiculous. It's it's not a great movie, but there is what it, the concept is. He is Santa Claus's brother, right? So he got immortality when when Nick did when Saint Nick did, and so he's still alive today, played by Vince Vaughn. Towards the like around the start of the third act he walks into a support group for siblings of famous people <laughs> and frank stallone is in that group along with bill clinton's brother and a couple <laughs> other and they're talking about how it sucks being related to a famous person and then he comes in and says he's santa claus's brother and they're like don't make fun of us this is serious <laughs> it's a great it is worth it to just for that scene. <laughs> well, you know I'm a sucker for Christmas movies anyways. and we. I have didn't to... say I don't cry at the end of Fred Claus every single time. I do. <laughs> well, <laughs> originally my plan for our Christmas episode, since, Nick, we both have a mutual, like, un, like, re, like stupid love for National Lampoons, was my idea was we should just do a commentary for the movie. There you go. Uh, but, or we could do Fred Claus. We don't know. <laughs> true. Um... I feel like we've touched on a lot with Rocky. Is there anything else that Nick you might you might have? Because uh, I, I thing I like about working with you, Nick, is with your what you went to school for English. You've yep. got to you, you, you analyze <laughs> you analyze things a little bit better, different than I do. Is that anything either of you want to talk about a little bit? I didn't do as much research as I normally did because of how busy. Because normally I read like I'll read essays and everything before I get it, before I sit down to talk, and I haven't had as much time lately. So 
I'm moving up to you too. I'm I'm um, typically. Oh, go ahead. I'm good. Like I think I've touched on everything. And matter of fact, I'm I've now been uh, 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 the revelation that there was a Frank Stallone. This was new to me. I'm now just <laughs> going through every Google photo of this guy. <laughs> and it sounds like such a fake name. It, it sounds like something in a movie. I'm like, oh, I, I'm Sylvester Stallone's brother, Frank. Like right. so- it sounds fake. Frank Stallone sounds like a fake name. I'm sure we- he'll appreciate you saying that. <laughs> Frank, if you're-, you're listening, we want to get you on the on the show along with Eddie Munster. <laughs> Someday. Someday. Yep. Um, no, usually when we're watching something off of my shame list, I tend not to take notes. Um, Same just because I, I tend yeah. to get engrossed in in picking up on things you need to pay more attention the first watch through but this one i actually did take notes uh but we actually hit on most of my notes in the first half of the show so um again all in all i surprisingly enjoyed it or not that i didn't think i was going to enjoy it i connected with the material much more than i thought i was going to and i and like i don't know if it's going to be this way for you but like I, I know it's this way for me i feel like the more you watch it like I feel like there's it. I don't think it, it might not ever make like your your top ten because it's a movie you didn't you don't have as much of a connection with from your youth. But I feel like it'll rise up your list more and more the more you see it. Nice. The other thing that I will say is I had the thought while watching it that visually it reminds me of a uh, vinyl album cover from the seventies, mm-hmm. like like a Bob Dylan. Record cover see or a Simon and Garfunkel album cover, um, with the the grain and and the depth of field and the, the and colors the colors. of the lights. It just it felt like an album cover to me. Yeah, you could screen like and like. There's a for me my my personal rule for if a if a film is a beautiful film is if I can if I can pause it anywhere in the film and it, I'd screenshot it, and yeah. I I feel like I could do that with this movie. Nice. And uh, before we leave, I just want to point out how f- my other the p- other part that makes me laugh uncontrollably is when they're walking through the meat cooler for the first time, and still and Rocky pokes a cow, and goes moo, moo. <laughs> <laughs> and like it, it's such an aside. They, there's no lead up to it. There's no they don't come down close, from like, it. It was like the camera's it's, already moved moo, when he does uh, it. <laughs> moo. Uh. <laughs> I think it it shows how kind of simple rocky is you know that that was just a funny joke to him there was no like like it it's part of that like charming simple guy thing it was it was adorable good couch is it (laughs) that's never gonna not be funny yeah i'm always gonna hear you doing it though nick it's a good couch so do you know you know Nice. But no, I think like had um, had the circumstances been different with this film, had you know, because I think they talk about in the documentary that they could have had a lot more money for this film if Stallone wouldn't been starring in it. Um, you know, they especially didn't want him to direct it. Like he he directed a movie after this called uh, called Paradise Alley that he it's a it's kind of a farce about professional wrestling that he wanted to direct to get his uh, get a directing credit out of the way before he jumped right into Rocky Two. Um, you know, had it been differently, had there been a different director, had there been a different leading star, you know, had the same script been written by someone who doesn't have a connection to it, this could have just been a whatever sports movie. But because everything kind of came together in the way it did, this little movie that is, you know, is the underdog as well, came out with nine Academy Award, Award nominations, except won three of them. Uh, if you give me one second, I can tell you which ones it, it actually won. 
I think it won Best Director, Best Film, and maybe Best Screenplay? Uh, hold on, I got it. Best Film, right definitely. Um, and I think... I think Stallone was nominated but did not win for his portrayal. Um, I think something else won. It, it won Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Film Editing. There you go. Uh, and it was nominated for Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Original Screenplay, Best Supporting Actor for both Burgess Meredith and Burt Young as Paulie. It was nominated for Best Music, uh, an Original Song, and Best Sound Design. I think it's a, bu- it's a little bit of a bummer to see that Talia Shire didn't win. <laughs> For this film, because I think she's just as oh, just as she is delight. We we she's haven't talked delight. enough about Talia Shire. Yeah, can we like? Yeah, we'll spend a little bit of time about her because you know she. I, I don't feel like she has gotten over the course of the franchise as much of a treatment as she did in Rocky. I think the original Rocky was like her moment, but the rest of the films, I felt like it. She was just kind of there to support Rocky, and I wish we'd seen more from her, especially when you know the inevitable happens and you know she's not there anymore, and like. Uh, I just kind of wish there was more there. So it just bums me out, considering her performance in this film, um, that there wasn't more for her. But go on. No, I mm-hmm. I agree. And, like, um, the thing I'll, like, I, I've talked to many, said many times during the make, during the making of this, that sounds dumb, during while well, we've been recording this, that every time I watch this movie, I see it differently. This last time, I didn't view it as Rocky's movie. I viewed it as Adrian's movie. And, like, granted, they do that same cliche where she's got hair in her face and glasses and you don't see how pretty it is. The but pretty ugly like, girl. Yeah. However, it worked really effectively, though, because she almost seems like a different person when they change up her makeup and everything. And she gets that confidence. Mm-hmm. And, like, she's just a, a gorgeous girl who's the who's um, very supportive of, of Rocky. Like... She it takes her a little bit to understand why Rocky's doing this, but you could get the feeling that in the long run it doesn't matter because she cares about Rocky, not necessarily what he's doing. I I would take what you said and stretch it out a little further too and say that for me it it wasn't a movie about Rocky as much as it was a movie about all uh, a, a big group of people in this kind of socioeconomic situation in in this city in this era and kind of the the issues that come up for for a lot of people in this you know that because Polly had his own strong story and and Adrian had her own strong story and Rocky and uh, you know again Burgess Meredith you he could have just been the trainer and that's it but in that confrontation scene in the apartment you get he gets a full treatment of story and it seemed to be a broader commentary on on a large group of people versus a story about one person with a bunch of people around to support that story no, like, and they all have, like, I agree with what you said. They all have their moments, and, like, they all have this one moment that kind of defines them. You know, when you we first meet Polly, and he's trying to comb his hair in a fucking sliver of a mirror, like, that, break just, this that just gives him you the idea of who he is. And then, like, there's little things that I choose that for as boisterous and loud and sometimes on the nose this film can be, I appreciate when they choose to be silent. Like, after that big confrontation between Mickey and Rocky, and I love that Mickey, he's halfway down the stairs and looks back up, thinking, 
is he going to have me come back up? Or, like, what's he doing? To, like, you know, he, you could, there's a little bit of care that Mickey has, but then he realizes it's not going anywhere. He leaves. And when Rocky runs back out, we don't hear what they say. Not, there's right. no sound. Yep. There's there's music. And there's that really, that they which is a happy accident, said the train that came by. They weren't planning that. <laughs> um, you know, they, 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 they hug it out. And you, we, don't, you, we don't have to know what they said. We can read it through their well, body language. Not only that, but, yeah, you can, it's not just that you see them hard to make up. You see Rocky hug him. And yep. then Rocky put his hand out to him and kind of then kind of forced the handshake on him um, that that makes a difference. And for them being so small in the frame and in silhouette without any sound, I thought it was very effective how they did that. Um, I also found that the door bit as Mickey is leaving to have worked surprisingly well. I think that that was kind of a could have very easily come off as slapsticky. When, yeah. you know, he goes, but because Burgess played it just right with, he opens the door and, clo- oh, I forgot my hat, and runs over, but he's so contemplative, contemplative. Yep. Uh, and then Rocky pops out thinking that he had already left. And doesn't and pops back in. Doesn't, like, he gives it the right emotional weight without it coming off his campy, like, oh, nope, thought you were gone. Close it. Like, I was surprised at how well that played out. And, like, I think it's that entire scene, I think it just describes Rocky's character very well, where he holds so much in that when he finally lets it unleash, it just yeah. kind of comes out. And I think that just, you know, describes his boxing career as you well. See, but you see it in the first fight when just kind of bobbing and weaving and throwing punch. Once he gets that punch to the face, just cha, cha, cha over and over again. He yeah, lets that and, rage out. And then, uh, you know, and then, like, he's quick to apologize. You know, when he kind of snapped at Adrian, he was quick to apologize. Yeah. and. Um, well, I guess the last thing I want to mention is that I, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of running jokes in a movie. <laughs> and I love that, you know, they kept talking about how he'd never has, have his nose broke. And then in the end, he broke his nose. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the payoff was worth it. I, I almost wish it would have been like, you know, at the end of the, the movie, uh, someone would have been like, how's your nose? Still not broke. Nothing. Nothing. So, uh, um... Are you available for maybe 10 minutes or so to help us load some stuff? In about 10 minutes, that will okay. be. Does that work? Yeah. Cool. Alright. Well, that was perfect time. That was perfect yeah. timing. Look at that. <laughs> Alright, I guess that means we'll have to wrap this up for the week. Um, Nick, before we go, um, since our next episode is going to be mid-deep in Christmas season, do you have any thoughts of what we should do for our Christmas episode, which also might be right around our anniversary episode oh a big big christmas anniversary blowout yeah because last year we did black christmas and the family stone which is a weird double feature yeah but it was fun (laughs) christmas is really all that tied those two things together we i've got i got complaints about the trailer for uh, black christmas because it's not very descriptive and it's just a lot of moaning it's a lot of noise (laughs) yeah doesn't play great in the podcast when i was listening to that edit i'm like okay all right, cool. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, I mean, we mentioned Fred Claus, and uh, we can keep it on the table, though. Like, again, it's not an amazing movie. That's so, something. I don't know, something. I just feel like we I think it's something. a jumping off point. But, yeah, we'll, do, we'll figure something festive out. All right. And, uh, Greg, thanks for uh, taking some time out of your day to come talk Rocky with us. Yeah. No problem. Uh, it was strange. awesome. I, I don't know if it's just because I was super motivated or what it was, but I like to believe that you kept us on topic today because <laughs> I don't think we we don't think we had really any tangents. We talked about Rocky the almost the entire time. The That's time. a first for us. The only, I guess the slight exception is when we talked about Rocky sequel. 
levels, but I don't sure, know. Yeah. but it's all within. It's all relative, you know. So. In the spirit of the franchise, Fantastic. exactly. All right, staying on topic now. <laughs> I did talk about Fred Claus for a couple minutes. Ah, it's all right. It was tied into Frank Stallone, so it all worked. We did. We you know, uh, but no, this was. A, I I had. I could say this every episode. This is a great episode. I really liked it. Um, I'm probably gonna enjoy it even more after re-listening to it. Yep. Just I gotta like find you do time. with Rocky. Yep. I've got to find time to edit this with it being Thanksgiving. <laughs> right. But, you know, first world problems, am I right? Yep. Like, the show is doing well. As always, guys, uh, we really appreciate any any ratings, reviews. Uh, and please hit that subscribe button so that we know that you're listening. I'm trying to work it out with uh, Vinegar Syndrome that if we can prove that we've got a decent amount of listeners, I can get us a promo code so that way you guys can get a couple bucks knocked off your movies. I just want to, you know, I need to prove that we've got people who are going to do it. (laughs) And then we're also planning a contest in the future. I'm still working it out, but it's coming. Yes, uh, I can tell you at least what the prizes are going to be. Um, prize will be a two DVDs, one of my my collection of short films, and then you get a copy of Nick's film Normal, his feature film that I have talked about on almost every single episode. <laughs> should should we throw in a copy of my equally mediocre novel? If you have copies to throw in, I do. I'd be Amanda to liked do your book. Amanda Yay! liked your book. She read it like cool. right after she bought it from you. Yeah, that's right. So yeah, I'll throw that in too. And uh, Greg, uh, if you can somehow get it planned in Atlanta where you can show Rocky 1 and 2 back to back, I might fly in for that. <laughs> I've got a couch. It's a little it's a little short. It might be uncomfortable, but you can sleep on it. <laughs> ah, it's all right. I, I, it's I, a, it's I, a good couch. I sleep on it. It's a good couch. And I, I wake up feeling terrible, but it's a couch. <laughs> all right. It no, needs not more only... newspapers and empty beer bottles. There you go. Not, not only will I fly out, but we'll have a good time mm. and, you know, find a way to show Rocky 1 and 2 back to back. It'll be great. But uh, I think Nick's being summoned. I'm being paged. Help. Yeah. Um, cool. Ooh. This was great. All right. Cool. All right. I think that's it for this week, guys. Thanks for listening. Uh, it's been real. We'll see you soon. See ya. Bye. Bye-bye. All right, so I've got a couple questions. I don't want to keep you for too long, but um, okay. uh, as I as we talked about like a week ago, I want to talk about uh, you working on Rocky and uh, more importantly your relationship with John Avildsen. Sure. All right. I, I don't know how much. I don't think I've told you a whole lot about how the show works. Um, the the podcast that I, I operate is called uh, the Shameless Picture Show, and how it works is being my co-host. We you know, we've noticed in our time as filmmakers that there's you just occasionally run to movies you haven't seen, and when you get kind of cornered into having to talk about it, mm-hmm. you uh, if if people are anything like me, you you have like this sense of, of of guilt and shame that you haven't seen it, so you make up and say that you've seen it and whatnot. So we started this show as a way to uh, talk about things that we haven't seen. But uh, with this show, my, my co-host, Nick, had never seen Rocky, so we ca- we used it as an excuse to talk about it. And um, uh, I guess let's start off with a little bit where, um, so before you had started Troma Entertainment, you were working on various productions. Am I, am I right with that? 
I was, uh, yeah, I, well, I made a couple of movies. Um, yeah, you made, movies. Yeah, you made, made some right out of college, but. Mm-hmm. I made them in college. Uh, I'm think. Uh, I'm trying to remember if I can remember the titles. The Battle of Love's Return being one of them. Uh, that was, uh, I made after college, right after college. Oh, okay. My uh, mistake. And I used some, some of the Warhol people I met and all that stuff. When I was in college, I, you know, I hung around New York a lot. So, uh, you know, I, 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 New Haven, where Yale is, is only an hour and a half. So I'd spend more time in New York than at Yale. And and I used a lot of the people I knew from New York in my Battle of Love's Return. But the other one, uh, The Girl Who Returned, was a feature-length uh, film at uh, Yale that I did at Yale. Black and white with a Bolex, and uh, it's like a silent film, and it's unwatchable. But yet, it's on YouTube uh, through trauma yeah, movies. Well, the trauma people did it just to humiliate <laughs> me. I think I think I, uh, you've gone on record many times in saying how much you, you don't like that picture very much. Well, no, I like it, uh, uh, but I, it's unwatchable. Uh, for me, it's wonderful. You know, it's very personal, and uh, but it's a silent movie, basically. Uh, you know, it's very hard to watch. And it's, and it's black and white, and no sync sound, well, and, uh, you know, it's pretty... <laughs> I I appreciate it. When I was in film school, I started on Bolex as well. We weren't able to sync sound, so I appreciate it because I know how much of a pain in the ass that can be. Well, well, you're in the minority. <laughs> so, <laughs> but um, uh, but the one thing I learned. Well, we, we I should, I'm already wasting your time. Oh, don't but worry. There about were it. some valuable lessons in doing all that kind of stuff because with the girl to return, we actually charged admission. And nobody asked for their money back. We played it at probably 15 different Ivy League. Uh, and, you know, there were colleges around that had film societies that corresponded with our film society. So I got to play it at Harvard and a few other places. And they never, as bad as it was, they never asked for their money back. That's a very valuable lesson. Also, the poster for The Girl Who Returned looked kind of sexy. It had a, 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 you know, the story is about a female athlete who's, and she's a runner, and, and there was a scene where she's just exhausted and she's lying on her back on the ground, and she happened to have a, a, a nice uh, body, and she's in a tight T-shirt, and her fun pillows are very are, are <laughs> clearly there under the T-shirt, and uh, uh, that was the poster that went around the Yale campus. And the, the competition for us that night was... Uh, I think it was a movie. I think it was Moonrise by uh, uh, Borzegi, Frank Borzegi, uh, which is a masterpiece. It's a film noir kind of masterpiece. Nobody showed up for that. I mean, you know, three people showed up for that because the poster just had the name Moonrise and the director. Maybe it had whoever was in it. But The Girl Who Returned had that kind of sexy photograph. And uh, we were full. <laughs> So I learned about advertising, and I learned about the poster. <laughs> Put an attractive person on the poster. It works. It's honest. It's the reason I ended up buying sugar cookies is because, well, one, I saw your name on it, and then it's like, this is kind of a sexy poster. And that's <laughs> how I want a copy of sugar cookies in my collection. Well, I hope you liked it. It's supposed to be sugar cookies is supposed to be uh, our uh, our version of Vertigo, Hitchcock's Vertigo, except like we it. made it. We I made like it a lesbian movie. It's too slow. I should have directed it. I, I regret that I uh, Oliver Stone and I raised all the money, and uh, 
we, uh, Oliver kept telling me, you should direct it. You don't let this guy do it. He's fucking it up. And indeed, he didn't fuck it up. He made a very he made a good movie, but it's too slow and pretentious. It's a different type of uh, For lack of a better term, it's very European. Well, that was his thing. Ted Gershwin, he had made a movie in Europe called uh, Kemek, K-E-M-E-K, which was like watching paint dry. But again, uh, on a certain level, it was, you know, I loved Bresson. Uh, uh, um, I just wrote a paper on Mouchette for a French book, uh, Mouchette, uh, but but it's uh, it's very slow going, and uh, Bresson is, a, is a, a master. He's one of the greats of all time, but uh, Gershuni was not, and uh, we managed to make an X-rated movie that nobody uh, that we lost money on. That was pretty amazing. Pretty hard to do that. <laughs> in those days. Well, we did it. It's finding its audience now. I mean, it's a good movie. It's a very good movie, but it's not. You know, it's not your typical exploitation film. I agree. But I think it could have still been a great tribute to Vertigo, a great fromage to Vertigo, without being boring. And unfortunately, I think uh, Ted made it boring. Hmm. But uh, let's, get, let's, let's talk a little bit about Rocky. So how <laughs> did you get involved with Rocky? And, with, uh, and was it because of John Avildsen, or was it other ways? Uh, I'm... I, I took acid uh, when I was a senior at Yale. I had two uh, job opportunities. One in California on a Hollywood movie, The Owl and the Pussycat, starring Barbara Streisand. I was offered a production assistant job on that. And I had another offer in New York from a crappy little company called Canon. And... Um, uh, I and I because I had bought into the uh, I speak fluent French, and the Yale Film Society uh, had a lot of these magazines, uh, the the Cahier de Cinema, Cahier de Cinema, Notebook of Cinema, which was written by uh, uh, people like Jean Luc Godard and uh, Cl uh, Claude uh, Ch uh, Chabrol, and uh, you know they were they were journalists, uh, critics moving into making their own damn movies. And uh, I bought into this auteur theory that they, the French after World War II came up with, which was that the director of the movie should be the, the, the it's all about the director. It's the director's event and that the director's heart and soul and mind should be in the movie. It shouldn't be a team effort. It's not a team effort. Uh, otherwise, it's not art. It's kind of that philosophy that it must be a product of the heart and soul and mind of the of the uh, film director, and I bought into all that. So when I was on, I took acid and blah blah blah, and and uh, uh, the uh, Canon, the shitty little company, was running some ads in the New York Times, um, and uh, I sort of got a kick out of them, and I decided to 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 stay in New York and uh, be in an an auteur and. Uh, and to work for the shitty little um, independent company. And and they were making garbage for the most part. But they had a script called The Gap. And um, um, while I was basically rewinding film and uh, doing a messenger jobs. And uh, uh, I, I could talk about that experience for quite a while. But... Um, they st the uh, the gap was a very poorly written treatment or script I don't recall about the generation gap, and it was going to have a bit of uh, R-rated you know mild softcore uh, sex in it, 
and it stunk. Avelson was working at Troma. Uh, sorry, Avelson was working at Canon on uh, a movie called Guess What I Learned at School, which Canon was going to distribute. And um, he was editing it. And I happened to cross paths with him. And uh, I did some rewinding and whatever he needed. I was like a third assistant editor. And then uh, he... Um, they decided to do put him on the, on Joe, on the Gap rather. It was called the Gap, uh, and and Avelson hated it, and he hired Norman Wexler, Norman Wexler, with whom he had worked at the ad agency that they worked, and and uh, they wrote a really good script. <laughs> they wrote Joe, which was terrific, and um, and I somehow got myself to the set. I think they had a problem with the. Uh, people with the lazy people or something. And anyway, Avelson needed somebody reliable. So he asked me to, he told the producers, send Lloyd. So I got to be on the, the first time I was on a professional set. Uh, up until that point, I was either making Battle of Love's Return or um, working on uh, this cannons. Uh, they, had, they would import these kind of, slightly sexy European movies and then they would shoot insert scenes so they they bought a western and I can't remember what it was it had the word wicked in it but uh, George Norris and Billy Sachs and and I would go off and shoot kind of softcore insert sex scenes to go in there so that was the only set I had been on really other than my own and Avelson uh, got me onto his set and the first day I showed up the first fucking day I showed up he was setting up a scene, I think it was, the first, I don't know if it was the first day of shooting, but uh, no, no, actually I was on that film before that, but I wasn't going to be on the set. <coughs> I was too, uh, they wanted me in the office because I could read and write, you know, and I could uh, do stuff that the other production assistants couldn't. Yeah. And um, so I, I got to, uh, they didn't, I wasn't allowed to go to the set. But Avelson, something happened, they got into trouble or the other ones didn't do anything or blah, blah, blah. So I got to go out there and um, and uh, be on the set. But I was involved in the pre-production because Avelson, I was actually, I was actually, the more I think about it, the more I was very much involved in pre-production. So I actually, I must have been on the set before then. But anyway, I don't remember. But what I do remember, Michael, is that I was assigned to take uh, what's his name? Tierney. Tierney. Uh, what's his first name? Lionel Tierney. He was in. Uh, oh yes. Uh, give me one second. I can tell you what his name is. I'm blanking at the Tierney's moment. Tierney's his last name. He's. A, he was in a very good to be. Uh, he was in one of those great. I mean, he's in a lot of good movies. He was in Reservoir Dogs for sure. Uh, but anyway. John wanted Peter Boyle. And Lawrence was, Tierney. Sorry, Lawrence, Lawrence Tierney. Tierney. Lawrence Tierney. I was at the, the uh, if I remember correctly, and I think I do, I was at the audition with John when he, when he auditioned Peter Boyle. And John fell in love with him. And Boyle improvised. The nice thing about Avelson, if you were uh, interested, if you loved movies, he'd let, you get, he'd, he'd let you hang out, you know, as long as you were doing your work. So I'd, I'd, I'd be there till midnight, two in the morning if it was necessary. But he so he let me uh, be in on on some of the auditions, and Boyle did this amazing uh, improvisation, 
and and he read one of the lines that Wexler had read had written, and uh, and he added something about, uh, and I ain't no faggot or I ain't no queer or whatever it was in those days, 1969 or 70. That was a pretty a pretty dangerous uh, improv, and uh, you know just the idea of improving, uh, at least to my young ears, was. Uh, <clears throat> and soul was kind of a gutsy thing because most of the actors did not improv. They just read the lines and did the best they could. <clears throat> and this guy, you know, he really was Joe. He was great. And and um, the the bosses didn't want it. They wanted uh, uh, Tierney, Lawrence Tierney. So we're taking Tierney up to, to Alexander's, a, a cheapo department store across the street from Bloomingdale's. <clears throat> Alexander's on the escalator. I think it was Alexander's. And... Uh, I suddenly feel some uh, something tapping my blue jean leg, and I look down, and the guy's pissing on me, and um, <laughs> that uh, that was the end of Lawrence Tierney. They fired him, and uh, and they 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 took Peter Boyle, even though they were convinced that Peter Boyle was too young to be uh, a uh, a veteran of World War II, or I think that was the issue. I think he was supposed to, it was a construction worker against the. The, the hippies, that was the theme that they wanted to deal with and uh, and have some sex in it. And they, Avelson and Wexler wrote, you know, wrote this amazing uh, script that was just brilliant. And then they, and, and we got Boyle, we got Peter Boyle. And uh, Peter Boyle was amazing in Susan Sarandon's first part. It was her first movie. And I think I get killed in that one at the end. I, I, I think I'm one of the hippies that they shoot. Oops, spoiler alert. Anyway, it's a great movie. It's so nobody knows about it, but it got uh, an Oscar nomination for best screenplay. $150,000 budget. Can you imagine a New York shot? $150,000 budget with no stars getting a uh, Oscar nomination for best screenplay? That's insane. It's a different world today. No never happened today. It would never happen today. No, it would not. And and the first day that I remember, I must have been on the set before then, but the first day I remember being on the set of Avelson's movie, he was shooting a scene through a furnace. Uh, so I guess Joe wasn't a construction worker. He must have been something else. Again, I haven't seen the movie for a long time. But he was shooting, Joe was working in a, in a place with a furnace. And John had set up this really great shot, kind of looking through the furnace. And um, and I right then and there, I said, hey, this guy is a filmmaker. This is no schlocko guy. This is serious stuff. And um, and I went to put my eye to the camera and some union guy. It was a junior. It wasn't even IA. It wasn't the big union. It was the junior union. Nape it. And some guy, you get away from that. Get away. You're not in the union. You know, that kind of thing. I was yeah. like, well, you know, I, I thought I had broken something. It was just because I wasn't in the union. So I wasn't allowed to look through the camera. Uh, and of course, it is rather unprofessional for a production assistant to come up to the camera. Yeah, a even little on bit. My set. Even on my sets, it's a, a little, you know, if they ask permission first, okay. But I, I just went and looked through. And at any rate, it was a, I, I, I decided then to attach myself to Avelson because I had seen Guess What I Learned at School or at least what they were working on. It was, it was really interesting. Guess What I Learned at School today. It was not uh, your crappy exploitation film. It was really good. <laughs> And, and at any rate, I decided to attach myself to Avelson and learn from him. 
and uh, and uh, I, I remember going over to his house and I, I made him sit through Battle of Love's Return. That's how what a good guy he was. He and his I think his <laughs> wife too, and maybe one of his kids. I can't remember, but he and his wife sat through uh, uh, Battle of Love's Return, uh, and uh, uh, you know he, he was great. And um, and I you know he, he the fact that I was so eager and. Uh, you know, I, it was not uh, there was never any quitting time for me. Uh, I I was I I would stay till three in the morning if necessary, and uh, so then uh, we kept in touch, or I kept in touch, and uh, I quit Canon, and um, you know started getting involved in stuff I wanted to do. Uh, I wrote a script with Stan Lee. And meanwhile, I worked for John Avelson for free. I didn't. Uh, I did uh, errands for him and uh, xeroxing projects he was trying to get going. And and when he got his next gig, he made me assistant director. You know, I didn't. I had no idea what it, I didn't even know what assistant director did, other than what I saw on Joe. You know, but I certainly couldn't run a set. Um, so I would. Uh, the first part of it was uh, I was the casting guy. <laughs> at the same time on Cry Uncle as being assistant director. And then I was very much in charge of helping uh, secure, somehow I got involved, they needed a big, this big boat, this big, it wasn't, it was bigger than a yacht, it was like a uh, a cruiser, cruise line, uh, went bankrupt and got parked in New York and uh, got parking tickets. It was in the papers because they couldn't pay for the, the uh, they couldn't pay for the pier. <laughs> So we would get parking tickets or the equivalent thereof. And the producer of Cry Uncle, David Disick, uh, had, uh, I think, he so, he said, let's go get that and have the bad guy, the rich guy, live on that. How, how much more interesting is that than just giving him a Scarsdale mansion or whatever they usually do? Yeah. And uh, so I had a lot of, uh, I think I was involved with the guy who owned the yacht, to try to convince him to, uh, you know, and I looked pretty shitty in those days. I had a beard and my clothing was, uh, you know, hippie style. And so, you know, they knew we didn't have a lot of money. And, um, um, but by the end of it, I was production manager because the production manager turned out to be a fool. And, and you know, there's so many hacks in this business and lazy people and stupid people so uh, from being uh, cleaning the toilets, I'm, I was uh, production uh, production manager. Yeah, production manager, and also I I raised a little money for that movie. So I was in on the limited part. I was a limited partner. So I um, I got to be inside on the producing side. I got to be a little bit inside, uh, and. Um, and uh, obviously, Avelson, uh, you know, she, he and I became good buddies. And uh, I play, a, I have a pretty good cameo as a uh, stoned hippie in that, uh, an LSD stoned hippie in uh, Cry Uncle. And uh, it's a great film. It's hilarious. And he did the same thing. Avelson did the same thing with that movie. Uh, the, Lee Hessel, the, the boss, bought a pulpy detective novel that was kind of a, you know, his plan was to turn it into a, a soft X, a, a soft core exploitation film. And, and, um, Avelson, Joe, I don't think Joe had hit yet. And, um, I don't believe Joe hit, had hit, uh, yet. So, uh, he hired Avelson who had made, uh, as I mentioned, some other movies 
including a movie that played on 42nd Street called Turn On to Love. Uh, and uh, it was uh, it, it played in the sex house on 42nd Street. And in those days, those houses only played softcore movies. But the movie, <laughs> the movie was so profound that the guy who reviewed Turn On to Love uh, for the New York Times, and in those days they reviewed pretty much everything, um, it, it, he said there wasn't uh, really wasn't enough sex in the movie or something. <laughs> but he liked the movie. Howard Thompson was his, was the critic's name. At any rate, uh, but it was Forty Second Street, so Hessel hired John on to. Uh, I felt John was the right guy, and John had a five or six movies under his belt, uh, and and Hessel let John totally revamp uh, Cryuncle. Instead of a shitty detective story. Uh, John hired David O'Dell, again, a very new, young, I don't think he had done very much, uh, to rewrite. And they wrote this incredible, uh, hilarious, instead of the detective being kind of a low-grade uh, James Bond, I, actually, I think it was a kind of a second-rate James Bond-type novel. It was called, oh, man, I can probably remember, it may come back to me, love me, love me deadly, maybe? Okay. Something. It was a crappy book, you know, a pulpy airplane book, and um, and it was not a bestseller. It was, you know, a real kind of. In those days, there were thousands of books. Uh, you know, not since it was, you know, those days was like the library of Hammurabi. You know, everywhere the bookstores everywhere. You know, you, paper. You used to browse in the paperback bookstores. Later, you would browse in the VHS uh, video stores. Yeah. So, so um, Avelson took this thing. He got. David O'Dell, they instead of a good-looking uh, uh, James Bond clone, or they hired uh, Alan Garfield, this fat, uh, bald, balding uh, detective guy, and uh, and they hired Madeline Larue, who was this uh, very strange-looking woman from uh, she looked like a some kind of a bird, uh, and she had this sort of some kind of she sounds like but Madonna on. Uh, a little bit like Madonna with the fake English accent, and uh, <laughs> and uh, she was very good, but she was different. She was very different, and um, and uh, and they uh, they made this thing their own. And the the cry uncle is hilarious. They changed it into an instead of trying to copy James Bond, they made it into a satire of uh, of of film noir. You know, cry uncle was you know not instead of cry terror. You know those movies yeah. like terror cry this they did cry uncle it's funny it's hilarious <laughs> and lee hessel to his credit lee hessel was uh, a, a distributor who uh, had a company called cambist c-a-m-b-i-s-t and he distributed ilsa she she wolf of the ss and he okay. would import the swedish uh, swedish minks you know, again, these softcore kind of movies, and he would also jazz them up sometimes. When porn came in, he would insert some a little bit of porn, just enough so he wouldn't get busted. Although, uh, Cry Uncle got busted in Pittsburgh. It actually got busted. Can you imagine? It got busted. Really? It's basically a soft R. It got actually busted. But that's the way it was in the early 70s. And uh, it was a huge hit, Cry Uncle. It was huge. And, you have, and Lee Hessel, good for him. That he let that he took a risk and let John Avelson make his own damn movie, and it's a hilarious movie and uh, was a huge hit. And Cry Uncle is what led to Michael Hers. Uh, I don't know that I would be partners with Michael Hers if Michael Hers's wife did not take her mother to see Cry Uncle 
and put her thumb over the X rating in the uh, <laughs> newspaper ads. And um, they went to see it, and I had a hu- I had a full screen credit, of course. And I would always trade uh, money for credit. I would take a small salary uh, in return for um, getting a, a bigger credit. And um, uh, so I had the full screen credit. And um, they saw that. And uh, Michael had gone to camp with my brother. And when he went to Yale, he looked me, he was two years younger than I, so he looked me up at Yale because my brother said to, but I had a TV that Michael wanted to watch. Uh, otherwise, I'm sure he would never have talk, talked to me. But his, so he had to kind of endure me while he was watching TV. They didn't have, you know, not too many people had televisions in their yeah. rooms at Yale in those days. And I had this black and white thing that, that you had to sort of smash it on the, to get it to stop uh, where the images keep moving up, you had to smash the top of it, and then the the image would say stay stable, uh, stable. Otherwise, it kept uh, it kept slipping, kept uh, slipping, and um, you know it was shitty black and white portable TV. But then uh, Maris Michael didn't want he was at law school, and he didn't want to be a lawyer when Maris his wife and mother saw Cry Uncle, and. Uh, so she suggested to Michael, she said, hey, look, Lloyd's got this big credit here in The Cry Uncle. It was a very funny movie. Uh, uh, and, uh, and then Michael ruined, <laughs> he came to, he, he, we, you know, he started helping. And then uh, uh, he decided to uh, throw in with me. And uh, a second promising life was therefore ruined. Uh, back to John. G. Avelson, but you can see how important John G. Avelson is to my life and to my career. No, that's what I was going to ask you. When yeah. uh, when John then gets the script for Rocky, I assume he brings you on from that. What did you think about the script when you first read it? What did you think about Stallone? Because Stallone has gone on record to say that he wrote this movie so he had something to play because he could only get jobs playing thugs and playing heavies. So he wanted to essentially make a role of a thug or a heavy with a heart. So I assume he brought you on what did you think about it because you know well, you, Avelson, here's the problem they had a problem the big lesson i took from avelson joe and cry uncle is that the location is is so important you know that ship that the bad guys on uh, as his headquarters in uh, cry uncle and there were some other wonderful genuine locations and of course joe uh, you know, they, they were shot in a real pharmacy when uh, Susan, uh, what's her name, Sarandon uh, flips out. She was a teenager, but she was great. <laughs> you know, we shot in real locations. The hippie, the hippie house was up in uh, Nyack, New York, or somewhere in there, and it was snowy, and it was it was a derelict house. But we went in and we painted the walls kind of hippie style, and and put a lot of mat- you know we propped it with mattresses and. Uh, and I learned so much about uh, how important, how the location can become a, uh, a character. So uh, Stallone had his heart set on shooting, and John, of course, was a big location person also. They had their heart set on shooting in Philadelphia. But the, the, because uh, Stallone insisted on being in the movie, the producers, uh, a United Artist and the producers, only had a million dollars for the movie. In 1978 or whenever it was, and uh, so they 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 uh, they wanted to shoot it all in California, and fake uh, the locations, and uh, for Philadelphia, 
pretend that Los Angeles was Philadelphia. And um, uh, that doesn't work very often. American no. Hot Wax. I don't know if you've seen American Hot Wax about uh, the disc jockey. I have not. Uh, they play, they, it's, 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 it could have been good. They play, uh, they play it in... Uh, it's got a good director too, but they play L.A. for New York, and it's just it just even if you don't know that New York, uh, y you can feel that it isn't right. Yeah, you can feel when it's not the right location, when it's not real. So uh, they they uh, they Avelson had the idea. Let's get uh, Lloyd. Uh, let's get Lloyd and uh, and Troma to uh, handle the Philadelphia shoot and do it non-union uh, under the radar. Uh, uh, because the uh, the bosses couldn't afford to bring union crew to Philadelphia, and uh, and shoot, it's much more expensive for them to bring the union to New York. And New York in those days, my wife had not been the film commissioner for twenty years, so they uh, the New York was a much more film uh, uh, film uh, uh, not as film friendly as. And the, the whole East, Philadelphia didn't have a film commission. You know, the, there wasn't this, uh, in, the incentives that they give you now. Uh, I don't know if Pennsylvania has one, but, you know, some of these states, I'm sure you know better than I, some of the states will give you back a third. New York gives you a third of your budget below the line back in cash. And my wife wrote that legislation, Pat. And um, so, so it was a much bigger deal to film outside of Los Angeles in those days and, yeah. and much more expensive. Because the unions, they didn't have crews in Philadelphia for the that the quality that that the that the big shots thought they needed, and to bring a a DP and a fifty person crew from LA to Philadelphia, the union requires first class hotel, uh, certain types of airplanes, certain types of food, all that bullshit, and they couldn't afford it. So Avelson had the bright idea uh, to say, told Stallone, "Hey, there's this guy I work with." He's smart, and uh, let's shoot. You know, we'll get them to shoot in you know uh, trauma style in Philadelphia. So Avelson had me uh, go to Philadelphia ahead of time and secure all the locations and places to stay, and uh, uh, you know the you know, basically uh, production manage, I suppose you'd call it, line produce, and um, and then we hired the uh, not everybody, but most of the crew were cry-uncle people that John Avelson uh, knew and trusted. And Ralph Boda, Ralph Boda, was the guy who did the DP work in Philadelphia. And he was the um, the lighting guy on uh, the gaffer on cry-uncle. Uh, and Joe, as a matter of fact. And Joe, but he had not been a DP. But uh, Avelson uh, made him DP on the Philadelphia stuff, which looks fantastic. And... Um, and and uh, the, the the strategy was we would film there for uh, as long as we could until the union found out, and then uh, they'd go. So we got about eight days of filming, and um, the, the obviously the you know imagine what that movie would be like without the uh, the fish the uh, fruit market running through the fruit market or the pet store or the ex the exterior of the gym or the South Philly shots or pet steaks. Or, or most of all, the running up those stairs of the of yeah. the museum. I mean, imagine if it hadn't been, if they had gone and just faked it. Well, Rocky wouldn't have been the Rocky you see today. No, exactly. And, and 
on the yeah. show, we actually talk about how I mentioned how the, the thing I like so much about Rocky is it's got texture. And because of these real locations and the lower film stock you, you guys shot on and this guerrilla style, it all translates to the film. And I it's why I think that Ro the original Rocky is the best out of the franchise because there's just this quality to it that doesn't feel fake. It doesn't feel overproduced. And even sets that feel like, yeah, this could probably be a set. Like, for example, Rocky's apartment feel real. They feel lived in. And it feels, yeah, you know, it just I feels think, legitimate. I, I, think, I think Rocky's apartment where, uh, I think that was real. Is that where, where Paulie goes nuts and smashes things? That was a house. I'm talking like Rock, Rocky's actual apartment where he has the argument of Mickey. It could have been a real apartment, but just, you know, well, I figured not, because the small. Not, that was L.A. That, I don't remember that in Philadelphia. But in any event, uh, how brilliant was it? And, and uh, of course, uh, the Teamsters found out about it and uh, <laughs> after eight days, and uh, they all went back to L.A., and uh, I stayed in New York to get my legs broken. And, uh, and now what's interesting is that Michael Hers and Maris, his beautiful wife, were in our editing room, and we would uh, the dailies would be synced up by them. They synced up the dailies, and wow. then the dailies... You know what dailies are, yeah, right? Yeah, of course. Your, your picture and sound are have to. They're on different reels. They're not. It's not like video. You have to sync. Well, video you have to sync up too, actually. Digital. Yeah, now you do. But anyway, they were syncing it up and uh, listening to no bozo your bupkus bupkus what the right what and they Michael was like what the fuck is this and. And then I had to project, the stuff would come back to Philadelphia, and I had to, we had a portable, we rented a portable 35 millimeter dual system projector, and, and I'd have to, to, to string the thing up, and, uh, you know, chart off the two producers would be there, Stallone, Burgess Meredith, you know, the, uh, the actors who, you know, I think Avelson let the actors see the dailies. I can't remember. But the point is that there'd be people, you know, who were much more important than I was. And I, my hands would be trembling as I'm making sure the loop and, 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 and you know, 35 millimeter in a projector, uh, especially a dual system, it breaks constantly. And I, I it never broke. I, I, but I was so nervous about those projections. You know, I was nervous about everything, you know, fucking getting the meals, you know, we couldn't have a honey wagon. So, uh, you know, we ate pizza. Uh, we had to get the street, you know, John would say, we need to get the streets wet. And I'd say, John, well, how are we going to do that? Get the people in the neighborhood. He was right. We got the people in the neighborhood. <laughs> I went door to door. I squirted and asked him, can you please uh, squirt this? You know, we're making a movie. And it was, a, it was, it was uh, the people in South Philly were so sweet. They're the nicest people in the world. It was, there was a little bit of danger, but for the most part, they were nice, absolutely lovely, generous people. And uh, they really cooperated with us. And we, ha we also had a guy who was uh, a buddy of Mayor Rizzo who helped us, uh, helped me at least, make friends with sort of the community leaders or whoever were the ones that might come and uh, want more, you know. He, he explained to... Pat Stakes uh, or uh, some of the locations that uh, Avelson liked that, uh, you know, we're legitimate movie people and, uh, you know, it's not a, because it's pretty bad neighborhood South Philly, at yeah. least those days. So And uh, and uh, and it was amazing. Now, uh, and again, I don't mean to bore you, but we, we the people that work at Troma are uh, avid Troma fans. And one of our guys, uh, Matt Mangerides, who worked here for about five years, 
he would go down in the basement of the Troma building and he would rummage through our stuff uh, just to see what's there. Because, uh, you know, we're 30, when he was here, we were 40 years old. And, uh, and he found my home movies from Rocky. I don't even <laughs> remember shooting them. But I shot the, uh, the, the Steadicam. You know, that was the, Rocky was either the first or the second movie to use the Steadicam. And I actually did behind the scenes. So you see how we used the Steadicam. I've got uh, the shots of Rocky running up those stairs at the, uh, at the museum, and everybody thinks it's Steadicam. It's actually we shot it from baby legs. You, you know, I, I shot John shooting from the baby. He did his own camera work. Uh, the the uh, Avelson's mounted right on the himself. The director is strapped to the front of the car uh, with his camera facing through <laughs> the, uh, the window to film uh, Stallone driving the car or whoever the actor was Joe Spinell the point the actors were driving their own vehicle with Avelson strapped uh, you know <laughs> rope onto the front of the that's what we do at trauma we have the actors drive and and uh, I shoot that way and uh, <laughs> and uh, you see it in my home movies and I, I sent them out to Avelson and he reduced them to about 15 minutes and then he and I wrote a script and we did a commentary track out at Fox, and and um, it's it's great stuff. You should see it. It's I've seen it's it. It's on the Blu-ray. It's fantastic. Good. It's also on the Troma uh, Troma channel on uh, it's, uh, YouTube, and it's free. You can go on Troma YouTube channel, and we've got about three hundred movies there, plus a lot of my make your own damn movie lessons, and that piece we did uh, for Avelson, uh, the the piece that Avelson and I did the commentary. Uh, is there and it's very interesting and it's it's also a lot of fun. It's pretty funny and uh, and he's great. He's great. But the, the, the little side note, uh, I uh, we got we both got takedown notices from Fox or from somebody when we put that uh, my footage which I gave to Fox for free. We had lawyers taking. Uh, they That's took amazing. down Avelson and me on the internet. So. And Avelson, I said, "Fuck it, I'm not going to bother. I don't care." Yeah. But Avelson, uh, it took him some time, but he he finally got them to reverse it. So I got two more things for you before I let you go, because I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Avelson, uh, by the way, Avelson, there's a very good documentary about John G. Avelson called "The uh, King of the Underdogs." <clears throat> I'm in it a bit, and I look pretty intelligent. Uh, come <laughs> to think of it, it's a pretty, it's a damn good uh, documentary. I, I, I definitely. I think you should see it. And Avelson narrates a lot of it. So you really get his personality and what a great guy he was. That's great. So the two things I got, I want to ask from you before I have you go. Well, wait a minute. There's more Avelson. There's more Avelson. I, uh, okay. uh, slow dance. <laughs> I, I made Avelson put me in uh, Cry Uncle. And then, uh, uh, you know, he he brought me on to Saturday Night Fever, but uh, he got kicked off. <laughs> and... Um, and uh, but I'm in the film, and uh, and then he put me in uh, Rocky, of course. Yeah. Uh, but I made him do that. I I, I wanted that ex experience of of being in the movies. And Stallone picked you up and brought you into the. In but but I learned again from uh, from that. I don't think uh, any director would have given me the kind of uh, cameo that he gave me in Slow Dancing in the Big City, and I really got a taste of what it was like <clears throat> to be an actor under the lights with the crew standing around and, and staring at you and all that, and then having to act and hit your marks and not put a shadow on the other. Per I never, and, and up until that 
up until we did slow dancing in the big city, I, I used to fight with the actors. I didn't get it. I didn't understand why they're so fucked up. And and ever since then, I've I've, I've been friends with the with the actors. You know, it, 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 it's it's uh, that really I really understood the pressure they're under, and also having you know shooting shooting. Uh, well, John did tried to shoot in con in uh, continuity. He he would try to shoot beginning, middle, and end. You know, he tried to. Sh he would try to shoot in sequence as much as possible, and that was also a big concept for me because he. I don't have you. I can. I don't have to do the uh, union thing, you know. It, with if you shoot Screen Actors Guild and you use somebody on Monday, and you use them again on Friday, you, uh, uh, and they're just sitting around the set picking their nose for the rest of the week, you got to pay for those days, the unused days. Even if they're not sitting around the set, I think you still have to pay them for the intervening time. Yeah. Whereas I can do, I can shoot in sequence, right? I can do that because mm -hmm. I'm not union. They're all young, and this is their big break. So uh, that's how we get. We we have people living. We everybody lives together when we make a movie. And even though somebody may not work for four days, they'll be they they'll sit and they, uh, enjoy themselves wherever we're living and enjoy their air mattress and the delicious. Uh, cheese sandwiches until they that we call, they're called to the set but how cool that I can shoot in sequence because I can re I can rewrite and change and that's what Avelson taught me he told me try to shoot as much as you can in sequence because you can make changes and if you if you shoot the end of the movie first you're locked in that's yeah. what Trey Parker Trey Parker when he put me in orgasmo I'm in the very very last movie the last scene and so he had that's and that did impress me also because Orgasmo is not an expensive film, and Trey had the had the uh, the the confidence to shoot the end first. Uh, he knew exactly what what he wanted to do, and he had total confidence that he would get what he wanted from the actors and blah blah blah. But I don't have that confidence, and I also don't know what I'm doing. And I like to improvise, and I, and I fight with people on set. And I've had actors walk off, or I've had to get rid of actors. I've had to get rid of them if they act up. You know, if they're assholes, you got to get rid of them and then rewrite. And but if if you shoot out a sequence, you don't have that luxury, do you? And if you have a real shithead, a, a cancer on the presidency, you're stuck, or you have to reshoot. So Avelson um, uh, really. Uh, the more I talk, the more uh, he was a major, major, major influence on, on, in every regard. That's great to hear. And like I said, I don't want to keep you very. Well, we should talk about Saturday Night Fever because I guarantee you, you're li unless you already know, uh, your listeners probably want to know. Well, wait a minute, what happened with Saturday Night Fever? Avelson was on it. He's not on it. Because yeah, I, I don't know this story. I don't know that. I didn't know that Avelson was on Saturday Night Fever originally. This is news to me. You, um, you've done so much for me and for Troma that I, I want to make sure you have good material and you can edit out what you don't like. But here's what happened. Avelson did the same thing with uh, Saturday Night Fever that he always does. He he took a, a very nice newspaper article, a magazine article, which came out of New York Magazine. And it was kind of a famous article when it came out about the disco, you know, about uh, whatever his name was uh, in the movie, Tony Monero, uh, dance, uh, you know, this kid who would go out to the discos and just dance and uh, the disco scene and all that stuff. And and Avelson brought back his buddy Norman Wexler uh, to write the script, and what a great script it was! And by the way, on Rocky, I read the script. I loved it, and my mother-in-law read it, 
way before they started shooting, before they even one frame, one twenty fourth of a of a uh, second uh, went through the one twenty fourth of a second frame went through the the, the camera. My my mother in law said Rocky's going to be the next Marty, and uh, it it far exceeded Marty in terms yeah. of film history. But she knew it. She knew it. I I, I knew it. I I knew it was great. But but she knew it was going to be a major, major film. She said it. And she wasn't a film person. She was a little old lady living in, a very nice lady living in uh, North Carolina. So uh, anyway, with Saturday Night Fever, John brought me on because it's a location movie. And, uh, and uh, I know how to, uh, you know, I'm a good people person. And, uh, but I had never set foot in Brooklyn mm-hmm. in my life. Maybe my dad took me to see the Dodgers in Ebbets Field, I have some vague recollection. <coughs> maybe I don't even think. <coughs> maybe we went there. <coughs> maybe. So Edith Gottlieb, the same woman who went to see Cry Uncle with her daughter, uh, who got Michael, uh, got me Michael, or got Michael, you know, is the beginning of Michael and, and Lloyd as trauma. Uh, she was my, uh, my uh, uh, how do you say it, a consultant, technical advisor on Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. You know, we didn't have, uh, I had to go out and get these locations. Uh, and we didn't have a G, G, GPS. Mm-hmm. There was no MapQuest. There was, there, was there was a car rental. That was it. And you had to write down the, like, lo, the directions. And, uh, you know, I, I had no idea what the hell I was doing. And, um, but bit by bit, uh, I got the, uh, I found places that Avelson liked. Uh, and he had a, uh, he had a thing in his head that he wanted to film on a dance floor that lit up because the 2001 misspelled Odyssey, which, you know, was misspelled. They misspelled the word on the building. The word Odyssey is misspelled. <laughs> the 2001 Odyssey, uh, uh, it was just a warehouse. It was ugly. It, it was totally un, not. So he had this idea to do a light up dance floor. And we searched all over the fucking uh, in pre-production. John, John Travolta, Pat, my wife and I would go out to every around midnight. We'd go at midnight when the discos got going and uh, or 11, you know, whenever uh, late. And we went to see every discotheque in the New York area. And um, we, 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 we found one called the Figaro that had a, a wall that, did, uh, that looked like sort of a xylophone that lit up different colors, <laughs> keys. And, um, but they didn't want us to film there or something. It didn't work or something. So the plan was then to go back to the real Odyssey but make the floor and put it there. <clears throat> so Avelson was responsible for that. That was his thing. And, and, uh, but we'd go to each of these discotheques and um, and uh, and and John was learning to dance, so he'd go and dance. And my wife likes dancing, so she would dance with uh, with John uh, Travolta rather. Um, Travolta. Wow. I'm sorry, Travolta was learning to dance. Uh, Jojo, some something. No, what Jojo? It was famous choreographer was teaching. And and uh, and uh, uh, John wanted Jacques D'Amboise, By the way, John wanted Jacques D'Amboise. I, I could talk for hours on this stuff. Um, I, I remember it so fucking vividly, but, um, anyway, so Pat and Travolta would go dancing in the discos and, uh, I was very jealous uh, because I wanted to dance with John Travolta, but uh, <laughs> fate did not permit that. And, uh, then, uh, and by this time, Avelson and I were, but, you know, pretty close friends. And, um, uh, 
We, uh, in fact, he, John Avelson came up with the idea of the trauma team. Because I said to John, I don't want to say a film by Lloyd Kaufman. I don't want to do the protect. He said, why don't you call it the trauma team? Make it the trauma team. And so he's responsible for that. He also gave me advice that I didn't follow, and I should have. Uh, the title, To Terror Firmer. He said that was a stupid title because nobody would get the uh, jeu de mots. Nobody would get the wordplay that Terror Firmer is a uh, terror firmer is a play on terra firma. And Avelson said, no, nobody knows what terra firma. You know, you may have gone to Latin school, but nobody else did. <coughs> and boy, was he right. That was a disaster, that title. If the movie didn't have that title, it would have done a lot better. Right now it's profitable because it's you know, word of mouth. But back then, there was uh, nobody knew what to Yeah, And when you would call a theater to book it or a booker, uh, they would uh, they couldn't understand it over the phone. Terra firma. Well, so, uh, I mean, he, he, he really knew what he was doing. Uh, but what happened there was he started uh, having disagreements uh, with uh, Stigwood, the producer, the big producer. And Stigwood was the was Mr. Bee Gees. You know, he, he was the uh, the manager or the producer of the Bee Gees. He owned Rhino Records and hmm. he owned other. He was a big, big, big deal. Huge, huge. And um, uh, <laughs> uh, so uh, there were disputes uh and I think I vaguely heard there might have been a dispute about the Bee Gees music. But um, uh, that's what I always thought was the, was the, uh, the final straw that uh, Avelson got fired. But Avelson told me <laughs> that the, he got fired because he was boffing uh, the girlfriend of the boyfriend of Robert Stigwood. Oh. And... Um, that he told me that that was why he got fired. <laughs> and uh, so uh, who knows uh, what the real reason was. My guess is it was probably more of, uh, I don't know, I don't know. But anyway, he got fired. And I, 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 I told John, hey, if you would like, I'll quit. You know, and, and John said, no, no, if you think you can learn something from this, stay on and see what happens. Check it out. And uh, and he said he'd heard John Badham's a good guy. That ne the other the, they had hired a director before they fired uh, Avelson, apparently. You know, they literally hired Badham. I think a week before we were going to shoot it was very close to before we were going to shoot. And uh, so I telegrammed Stigwood. Mr. You know, here I am, a little shithead. And uh, you know, this is 1979 or 78. Or, it was around the time Star Wars came out. I think it was 77. And and. Um, uh, and so I, you know, 77, uh, so a long time ago. So I telegrammed Robert Stigwood, uh, I must meet with you, urgent, I have to meet with you. <laughs> I didn't say what. And he being, he being a good guy, he, okay, come on over. And, uh, I, you know, I tried to call him, he, he didn't call back, but he, he did react to the telegram. And uh, <laughs> you know what a telegram is. Oh, right? yeah. yeah. Not too many people know. So, uh, uh I told him, don't, you, Avelson's brilliant, I know him, and he's great, and you're making a huge mistake, and you just trust him, he's great. And Robert was very nice, he was very polite, and I assumed I was going to get fired. And um, and uh, it turned out his nephew, who worked on the film, was a production assistant, uh, his nephew told me that uh, Robert actually liked me and liked the fact that I, uh, that I pushed back, and uh, they kept me on, and... Um, and uh, uh, it turned out Batum was really great. And Batum 
uh, wrote uh, the uh, uh, took that script and and added the uh, big. He added the. Uh, I mean, he made it his own, but he kept most of Wexler's genius. But he did add a scene uh, where the car crashes into the hideout of the. Oh no! Did you get cut off? No, I'm still here. Oh, okay, something, something buzzed. Batum uh, 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 wrote the scene. Uh, I'm, I'm sure he wrote other stuff, but uh, I was with him as he was writing the scene where the car crashes into the gang's headquarters. Yeah. And 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 I saw how they did that. And if you see Sergeant Kabuki Man NYPD, a trauma modest budget movie, we have the exact same thing of a car crashing into a dry cleaning uh, wall, a, a picture window, you know, a dry cleaner's window. Uh, store window, and I did it the exact way they did it on uh, on Saturday Night Fever. Except I didn't have people that were paid three thousand a week doing it. <laughs> we did it, uh, you know, we were all unpaid or whatever. Hey, you learned I, something. I learned a fucking hell of a lot. And Batum was great. He's a terrific guy. And uh, I, uh, again, he suffered from the mediocrity of the uh, ca- of the crew and the you know the 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 the, the, the main when the, the these bigger movies, there was there was very little support for him. You know, the 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 unit managers and the production managers and the ads, they they're spoiled. They they don't have to think. Everything's writing a check, and they they don't. You know, they they're really not interested in the writing of the movie or the direction. At least that's my experience in my world of union movies. Uh, they their attitudes were terrible, and I was you know like totally obsessed with film. So I hung on, uh, I, I, I found, uh, I got to see Bingo Long Traveling All-Stars, which was a great movie, a TV movie. And then I, uh, you know, I saw Batum was smart and he loved movies and he was well-read. And uh, anyway, he went to Yale. He was a little older than I. And um, a great guy. So I, I, I stayed with him. And, you know, in addition to being the location executive, I got uh, friendly with him and, and tried to get him you know, tried to make life easier for him because he didn't get a lot of support from the Schlocko production staff. At least in my opinion, they were Schlocko. The, the, uh, my boss was a great guy. Uh, Milt Felsen and Mike Hausman were terrific, but they had these DGA, Directors Guild people that just were sh- hacks, hacks. So, um, you know, I was the only one that cared in terms of the production. Uh, well, I, that's not fair to say. I'm sure everybody cared, but I, I was obsessed. <clears throat> and it was a horrible, I hated that job because it was winter, I was outdoors and location, loca- uh, you know, if you film in a, if you film the exterior of a house at night, the, the, uh, in fact, Ralph Boda, the guy from Cry Uncle and uh, who ended up doing the Rocky Philadelphia stuff, he became the, he became the director of photography on uh, Saturday Night Fever. And, uh, hmm. and, but he, he, and he was great with locations. <clears throat> but when you shoot a location, if you're shooting an exterior of a house, a, a good director of photography, he wants to put lights on the neighboring houses, and he wants to make sure the lights are turned on in the in the windows, and uh, and then you need a ba- you know the, the the Saturday Night Fever was not a big budget movie, even though yeah. it was Paramount, so uh, they didn't have honey wagons, and they were it would be stupid to do it anyway because uh, John Travolta was kind of. Uh, a big star, and the more that, more trucks and bullshit, the more people are going to know there's a movie there. So I had to uh, go and get uh, 
green rooms in uh, neighboring houses or across the street and and I had to tell the neighbors uh, get permission for parking uh, I, you know it was like running for congress they wrote a little piece about me in the uh, in the uh, uh, when the movie opened and they had a they had like a theater program uh, uh, you know one of those things you get uh, mm-hmm. like a little magazine yeah and they had a section on me and I I said it was like running for congress uh, because I had to literally win over not just the location, but everybody around the location to make sure that nobody interfered and and that people cooperated. And then I had to, to get them to do it for free. Imagine you know going into somebody's house. Would you mind if we plugged in our light here or tied tied in uh, into your basement with a big light so we can? And they were so nice. They were in Bay Ridge, uh, Brooklyn, uh, you know. And and I think we paid the people whose house we wrecked. A um, hundred dollars a day or something, and and um, a, a, you know I got him an autograph or something with Travolta. You know we had to build walls in there, and uh, and uh, you know it's pretty rough on a place when you have a professional union crew uh, trampling through with their boots and cigarettes, and and in those days you could smoke inside. The first day, the first day we were in that house, and that was the house that Batum wanted. And uh, I had to do, I had to practically blow everybody in the family. And uh, it was the nicest family, but they had kids who go to school, you know, uh, they were very uh, nervous about it. And, and rightfully so for $100 a day. What the fuck? Yeah. Uh, so um, the first day, one of the crew puts a, a, he puts a cigarette out on the wall of the house. You're kidding. So I yelled at the guy, what the, you know, and then I was the one who got, uh, got, <laughs> I was the one that the shop steward or somebody uh, got pissed off at me, you know, because it's, it's the union, you know, and I'm just a shitty uh, production person. So uh, I also remember once I picked up a, some cable to, at a wrap, uh, we were out, we were outside at the paint shop and um, I was helping, uh, I thought let's help with the wrap. So I picked up a big uh, they call it horse cock. It's this really thick cable that you use to tie into the fuse box, and and then you plug all your lights into this uh, big, uh, like a giant heavy duty extension box yeah. that you can plug in the lights. Of, you know these giant five Ks and ten Ks, uh, but you have to tie into the basement. So I was, I picked up a big coil of this stuff and. Brought it over to the truck, to figuring I'll I'll help these guys. You know, I'm a team player. I got yelled at for that. <laughs> I got yelled at. I've gotten I yelled at for that same thing. They wanted they want overtime, so uh, you know they want it to last as long as they can. So um, uh, in the case of looking through the camera, I think that was more. Uh, 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 it wasn't even the camera department that yelled at me. It was some other person. But they, uh, I think it's more they want to keep this mysterious. You know, this is, you know, union work is so technical. You know, you have to be very, it's not. The big secret is it's, uh, it's much harder to, uh, much harder. Yeah. <laughs> it's much harder. It's much harder to be, a, to be the accountant than to, with all <laughs> due respect to the uh, camera people. <laughs> In any event, uh, th- th- that was a great learning experience. And uh, the movie is great. It's a wonderful movie. Uh, and... Uh, uh, I, it's just too bad Avelson got himself thrown off that one. And uh, he also got thrown off of Serpico. I could have been on that film if he didn't get thrown off. Although by the time Serpico came along, I, I was pretty much making my own damn movies. But uh, he got thrown off the Howard Stern movie. Uh, 
he could have been on what was the other one there was another big one that he got thrown off of uh, shit I don't remember but you know he did the Karate Kid series and yeah. uh, he, he, he's got an amazing he, he, he has a, incredible I mean uh, just just Rocky but Karate Kid, right? both those movies are uh, landmark. I mean, they're not landmark. They're among the greatest American movies in history. You yeah, know? Even, even people who haven't seen the movies know what those movies are. Fuck yeah, yeah. It's interesting because he didn't care about this, uh, you know, going to the, you know, the this restaurant or that. You know, he, he loved movies, uh, but he wasn't into the, uh, the, the party... Uh, Right, and the yeah. uh, my guess is he today he would never have been too heavy into uh, Twitter and Facebook and all that. He didn't. I don't recall that he ever had PR people or, you know, you know he was that kind of guy. And uh, the documentary begins with uh, the documentarians asking people in the street, "Do you know who directed Karate Kid?" And they, they, I think one person said Woody Allen. <laughs> yeah, no. The point is nobody, but nobody knew his name. You know. There are people in the business, obviously. Well, and the tragedy, the tragedy of it, the tragedy is that he went, I think, 20 years without working. Really? At the end. Uh, 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 something like that. I think he told me maybe. 18. You two were still friends by the end? Yeah, he was my pot guru also. He uh, he, <laughs> he had to work. Uh, he, he, uh, he kept me up to date on all the uh, latest technical, technological pot inventions. Uh, I never had a vape. He sent me a vape for my birthday uh, when vapes came in. Thank hey, so long, Benjamin. Have a nice evening. Thank you again. I'm, I'm doing an interview. Yeah, have a good time. weekend. Uh, so, so um, uh, yeah, I, the, the, it was one of the pyramid vape when those vapes came in. And uh, and then he gave me, uh, when we did the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, the commentary track for my home movies, <coughs> he gave me a... Uh, the little tiny thing that you put marijuana in. They were like a mini vape uh, that you could carry in your pocket. And, uh, uh, and, uh, and that was, and, and then he told me about the oil and, uh, and then unfortunately he died. So, uh, uh, these little tiny vapes that you can use now are terrific, but, uh, he would have liked them. Uh, well, I do appreciate and, you sitting down with us, Lloyd. Well, I'm, well, I wish I was sitting down with you, but, well, uh, well, through the internet next time i'm in new york i plan to actually stop in and say hi and bother you guys a little bit i'm trying to think there's probably i'm trying to think about the interesting thing about avelson too and this is the mentality stan lee's the same way i i, I would he had this great script avelson it was called something like nate and al about two about uh, an old uh, survivor of uh, the uh, holocaust and his american son okay and and it's a wonderful script. And you could make it for half a million dollars. You could make it on the trauma budget. And I kept saying, John, you, you, he kept, he, I said, you, you've got money. Why don't, you know, you put up some of it. I'll put in some money. And uh, and he just didn't, he, it, you know, they get in that frame of mind, I guess, where they don't want to go back to sort of the, the lower budget. So he sat there for 18 years, 20. When he told me it was 18 years, but maybe it's 20 years now. And, um, uh, you know, he just didn't, he didn't want to do it unless it was, I guess, you know, sort of the Hollywood way. And what a pity. It's he's, too bad. Right? He's an artist. 
Like he he wanted to do it the way he wanted to do it the way he felt served it best. Well, they could have served this one didn't need stars. This one doesn't need stars, and it could have been another kind of rocky for him. But I think he just didn't want to be having to cut corners and all that stuff. He wanted a certain and and, and oddly enough, uh, um, I I made an he wanted he wanted Kirk Douglas and Michael Douglas to do the parts. Uh, <laughs> And I had worked uh, Final Countdown, which was my final, last mainstream uh, contact with the mainstream, and the mo- and the project that uh, that totally frosted me to ever again working within the mainstream, was um, was uh, uh, Final Countdown. Uh, Peter Peter Douglas, <clears throat> Kirk's uh, at the time 19-year-old son, I was his uh, associate producer. And we had a small piece of the movie, uh, Final Countdown, the Final Countdown. I, I so I got Peter, who had since long since moved up north. He was no longer in the movie. At least he wasn't producing Hollywood movies. Yeah, I think he was. He might have been. He had some other business, but that was successful. And I think it may have been producing into, uh, medical movies or something. I can't remember. But I I got to him and I asked him, could you please get? Can we get the script? to Kirk and Michael because you have an Oscar-winning director who wants to make a movie with them. And uh, I sent the script to Peter who passed it along to uh, John, to um, uh, uh, Kirk, with whom I also became friendly. Kirk was very, very proud of Troma uh, after Final Count, uh, you know, because I kept, uh, so kept in, I went to a couple of events that he was honored in. And, um, uh, uh, but I never heard from anybody. And John, I asked John, "Do you want me to follow up?" And he said, "No. It's clearly the that's how it that's how it's done out here. You don't hear, they don't call you back." <laughs> <laughs> but you'd think he, you'd think he could get to Kirk Douglas and you'd and think Mike so, Douglas. yeah. Huh. So shows you shows you they uh, you know he hadn't had a hit for a while, uh, you know that's how they do it. Right? Maybe you should make that movie for him in his honor. Well, you know, I, 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 I went, I, the, the, the Avelson, as I, as I think I've hinted at you, meant a lot to me. Yeah. And, and they had, when they had the uh, memorial for him at the Directors Guild, I went from New York to the L.A., Los Angeles, uh, to that event, the memorial, uh, for one day. I, 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 uh, I just I went and came back. I just did it out of respect. But uh, the guy who, who who wants to produce that, uh, the guy who's who owns the script or controls it, I told him, hey, let let's do it. Let's do it uh, like the old days. Because he's also we had bought. He produced a movie that we bought. Uh, uh, that Avelson uh, has a piece of. Uh, that Avelson directed a. Uh, if you want to see a great short movie. Uh, we own a movie called Foreplay, F-O-U-R Play, P-L-A-Y. But it's three, it's actually three long, short movies by three different directors. And Avelson's is terrific. Zero Mostel and Estelle Parsons. Okay. It's fabulous. It's the best. And they they all play it to the hilt. Mostel, again, totally fierce, courageous actors. And and I and uh, and Corson produced it with Carl Gurevich, I believe, and and I uh, so I I I told him about it, but he didn't uh, call me. So uh, you know, I told uh, I think his name is 
Benny Corzin. And I said to him, you know, well, what, why don't we try to do it on the trauma budget? And uh, he seemed to be interested in that, but I never heard from him. So, uh, you know. Well, maybe one day. Stan Lee's the same way because I remember he was telling me when Michael Jackson was alive, Michael Jackson calls me up and he wants to make a movie with me. And and uh, I've got this great idea and Michael Jackson loves it. And I'm trying to get, uh, an, I, I need to get an A writer on it. I got to get an A level writer. And I asked, I said to Stan, well, how much is an A level writer? Uh, it's a hundred thousand bucks. This is probably going back. You know, this was has to whenever this was be quite a bit before Michael Jackson died. Uh-huh. Uh, and a hundred thousand bucks is not that much, right? And I said, well, Stan, you why don't you put it up? Get the script written. They don't. They don't think in those terms. There's some kind of. I guess it's it's the 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 environment or the culture or the or I guess in the same way that. Uh, that I, uh, no matter how well to do I, I get, I will take the shampoo from the uh, the free luxury hotel that uh, uh, festival puts me up in. <laughs> you know, it's just in my <laughs> nature, and I think they get so wrapped up in the culture of uh, of being part of the A level mainstream that they they don't want to come down to uh, doing it. You know, doing the uh, in Stan's case, I, I I think he just didn't. I don't know. It was weird, but you know they have a certain modus. Uh, they have a certain thing in their head that they they they'd rather not do it than either put in money or or um, go down a, a rung on the food chain to make the lower budget movie. What are you gonna do? Yeah. Anyway, it's a great script. I'd love to read it, but I don't think it's a probably ava- probably not available. No, I should call Benny Corson back up and see what's up with that because, uh, uh, well, it's not that commercial. You know, it's an old guy and he's in the thing and the sun and it. But Avelson would have made it amazing. I don't know that I could do it justice, but Avelson really it was a perfect film for Avelson. It had Avelson people in it. You know, he had another tragedy too with this fucking Van Damme. Uh, Avelson made a movie with Van Damme, and Van Damme totally fucked it up. Totally fucked it up. Oh, it's a shame. It was, it was unfortunately uh, Van Damme had the power, and when I was interviewing Avelson for the Cryuncle DVD, he was uh, uh, he had finished shooting Van Damme's movie, and he was Avelson was telling me uh, that Van Damme was all coked up, and uh, and in fact Avelson cut. He edited a, 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 a Avelson shoot like I do. He shoots, and I learned this from Avelson. He shoots a lot of behind-the-scenes home movies while he's making a movie. I do the same thing. But I got it from Warhol more than from Avelson. I got Warhol always had a camera with him, so I always carried a camera. But then when video came in, I changed it to a video camera. But Avelson always was making these shooting behind-the-scenes and and shooting the auditions, which I do, and I have always done that. But but uh, and he taught me that. Uh, but he um, he uh, uh, where was I now? Uh, why am I talking about Van Dam? And then something. yeah. Oh yeah. So I came out to film Avelson uh, uh, for the um, Cryuncle uh, DVD, and I was in his house. And he was on the phone with Van Dam. I filmed him on the phone with Van Dam, <laughs> and I talked to the camera. If you get the uh, 
if you get the Cry Uncle DVD, I talk to the camera and I say, right now, John Avelson's on the phone and he's talking to uh, whatever his name is, Van Damme, and he's trying to t tell Van Damme, uh, Van Damme did not want to give Avelson, uh, he took the editing away from Avelson and cut it himself. And Avelson said, look, why don't we have two screenings? We'll have one with my version and one with your version and we'll have two focus groups. You know, we'll, we'll get one of those agencies that do that and uh, we'll have them uh, see which version is more liked by the audience. And, and Van Damme wouldn't do it. And I was filming Avelson from the back while he and I explained to the audience what's going on, but uh, how what us uh, and the film sucks. And I, I also came to the set once or twice uh, on that movie, and I saw dailies from that movie, and it looked like it was going to be a real John Avelson kind of movie with uh, great characters and and interesting faces, and but it, it was not to be, and uh, mm. that, that, that I think that kind of sealed the. The, the fate of his career, I guess. That's it unfortunate. Was, film was not well, you know, but didn't. It was a bomb to say the least, and it wasn't his fault. Fucking Van Damme. Oh, Avelson edited. Avelson took home movie shots of of Van Damme doing because <laughs> he was always on coke, apparently, according to Avelson, and he cut he cut different shots and different angles of Van Damme sniffing. Uh, he cut it to a piece of classical music like Tchaikovsky or something or Beethoven, and it's great. And I said, Avelson, you got John, you got to put this on the internet, and he, uh, he he didn't do it, but he's got it somewhere. It's great. It's so funny. That's and, amazing. And, you know, yeah, he was great. He really was. So um, I could go on forever. <laughs> No, I think you've given me plenty to work with, and you gave me some great stories and told me things I didn't even know. Just the fact that John G. Avelson had enough interest in a production assistance feature-length movie, Battle of Love's Return, uh, to be willing to sit through it with, you know, with the guys. You know, with someone, very often people send you uh, a movie to look at, uh, and you, you know, you look at a few minutes of it, and you say, oh, no thank you. And the fact that he was willing to sit through it with me there and watch the whole goddamn thing, uh, that tells you something. Back in 1970, that he said, you know, that that's pretty amazing. Yeah, in my opinion, so he was a good guy. I can hear it in your voice that you uh, that you two yeah. were close. Yeah, and uh, Norman Wexler unfortunately died. He was uh, he had some issues. He died, but I, I, his daughter is occasionally in touch with me. Huh. Yeah. Anyway, I miss Avelson a lot. Yeah. I mean, oh, he also introduced me to Jacques D'Amboise because Jacques was going to be the uh, Jacques D'Amboise was the lead uh, male for Balanchine. He was Balanchine's favorite ballet uh, male uh, in uh, New York City ballet, and uh, Jacques was going to be the choreographer for Saturday Night Fever, which would have been very different from JoJo, whose name I can, the guy who they got, who was great, but. Uh, uh, and and uh, I remember when Jacques first came to the production office, uh, and he he walked he, you know you looked at the guy and he was like some kind of animal, you know, a lion or a, you know some beautiful animal. <laughs> <laughs> I had very little contact with him, but after Saturday Night Fever, uh, Avelson 
asked me to work for uh, Avelson made uh, Jacques D'Amboise was uh, started something called the National Dance Institute, which purpose was to get young boys. Originally, the idea was to get young boys looking at ballet as a form of athletics. Uh, ballet, as you know, has a reputation for male uh, homosexual, you know, for homosexuals, uh, and apparently that is true. Jacques was a very virile. He liked the ladies, and. Um, he, he's still around. He turned 80, and I'm not I'm not close to him anymore. But um, I just you know not be for any reason. Just uh, you know we, we uh, but we we made uh, Troma has made three or four movies for Jacques for free. You know, and the first one was John Avelson, a short film when Jacques first began the National Dance Institute. It's called Dance Space, and it got into the New York Film Festival, and Michael and I produced it. And we did everything for free, so they, you know, all, all they had to pay for was film, and Avelson did it for free. And I did a lot of that stuff for Avelson. We did, we shot a, uh, a short film for uh, Rugoff for uh, uh, what, uh, independent. He owned a small chain of independent theaters, but he had Cinema One and Two in New York, and uh, he had a distribution company, and he was distributing Pumping Iron, and uh, Avelson agreed to shoot this trailer for Rugoff Schwarzenegger and uh, we we he had us come and get the equipment and, you know produce it for you know be the line producers and we all worked for free uh, and uh, so so we did these other things that he uh, was nice that Avelson was nice enough to do for people and and after dance space trauma made uh, we made uh, at least two more we made two feature length documentaries uh, that uh, one was in China, and uh, and that got on HBO. That's a feature-length movie, a documentary, and I was there. I brought my one of my daughters there, and um, and of course did it for free. In fact, on that one, I I put in some money, and uh, and uh, the other one was uh, what the hell was the other one? It was a feature-length. Uh, so we did a lot of work for Jacques D'Amboise, and Jacques D'Amboise choreographed a scene. A dance in Stuck on You, and really? Jacques. Well, if you're into ballet, Jacques D'Amboise is a bigger than life character. He's up there with Nuria. He's one of the greats. And Michael Hers, we were plotting out the the choreography, and Michael Hers was the dance double. With the, he played the girl, <laughs> the, uh, the non-male, the cis-identified feminine person, uh, whatever you can say, a gyno uh, actor. He uh, Michael was dance uh, dance double for uh, Jacques D'Amboise. If only we would have had video, digital video in those days to get Michael Hurst dancing with Jacques D'Amboise. Oh, I'm so sorry I missed that. Never <laughs> even took a never even took a photograph. <laughs> so um, there you go. There you go. At any rate, so you can see uh, so much of my uh, humble career is uh, Avelson uh, fueled. <laughs> even my elemosinary work, even so much of the work I did for free. Uh, was Avelson inspired? That's how loyal I am and was to him. Well, that's great. Like uh, I said, I knew that Avelson was a big, had a big uh, part in the beginning part, uh, of your career. I didn't hadn't realized how he had ca he had kept influencing the later part of it, and that mm -hmm. a big part of Troma's success is because of Avelson. He also told me, which I've never been able to do. He said, "You know, your movies are very funny." 
why don't you, uh, I, I gave him a script to read before, you know, in pre-production uh, to get some notes from him. And, and he said, you know what you should do? You should, you should uh, perform the script at a comedy club and get an audience there and see where they laugh. And, you know, we have no money. He could snap his fingers and get a, a nightclub and rent it and get an audience. <coughs> and I went around town trying to find comedy clubs or, <coughs> but Troma was, you know, not known really, was still not known and we have no money. <laughs> and, and I never could do it. On this movie I'm about to make, we're going to do it, finally. I'm going to, uh, the Upright Citizens Brigade uh, is involved with us. And uh, the guy writing the script is a member and a teacher there. <laughs> and we're going to get this theater, this the pit, which is their headquarters in New York. And we're going to uh, perform the script there. Not with the cast necessarily, but just with good acting and good, you know, we'll get good people, comedians to read the parts. And uh, we'll perform it in front of an, of an audience. And we'll see where they laugh and where they don't laugh. And, uh, you know, now that Trome is well known, the pit is willing to let us have the place for free and... You know, the people will watch for free and, uh, you know, my name and <coughs> trauma is big enough so that we'll get an audience since it's free. Yeah. Uh, so I'll, I mean, it's a, and that was Avelson's idea. And finally, finally, I'm actually able to uh, make it happen. So how cool is that? That's really cool. But uh, I think I've kept you long enough, an hour past yes, our original amount of time. I wouldn't spend all this much time if it was not you, Michael, who's done so much for Troma, and of course John G. Avelson, who uh, uh, you know probably made it clear that he, he's a god in my little universe. Well, you've been a big part of my my little universe as well. You gave me a job pretty early on, even though it wasn't paid. It was still a job. You got me working and and doing things, and uh, you were the shining. You and the trauma team were the only nice part about me going to Cannes. Let's put it that way. Oh, well, I'm glad you went, and it's a great experience. I'm never going back to Cannes, uh, not after the experience we had this time. So it's, it's a fascist festival. Yeah, we got. Uh, you can. Uh, I believe, uh, I think a Troma Movies, we put up a, uh, a short, uh, wait a minute, no, we're, we don't, we didn't put it up yet. No, no. Was it's it the being, Occupy Can? Because that was when, the year I was there. Was no, Occupy no, that, was, that, that wasn't great, but we, we weren't mistreated. Uh, this time, the, 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 the festival people, these big guys in suits, had the cops literally arresting us for the parades and the streets. Oh, I did read about that, yeah. Stuff I've been doing for, you know, over 40 years, right? The cops know us. They like us, right? They, they The people of Cannes love us. They, they enjoy trauma. We're a fixture. But the festival apparently didn't like the fact that we were not, we, we were getting as maybe more attention than the, the uh, you know, the, the little coterie of people that they, uh, whose movies they show, and, and of course, the big, the big conglomerate movies that they also show. <coughs> but for some reason, they, 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 uh, they did not. They said that the trauma picket signs were political. The cops had these big, tall guys in suits with sunglasses and earphones, and you know the things in their ears, <coughs> who were behind the cops. And uh, uh, our guys got pushed. Uh, uh, before I got there, they shoved John, my assistant, and about ten of our volunteers and cast members who were having a nice parade they pushed them up against the wall and 
you know, they didn't beat them, but they came as close. They took their licenses, and uh, it was horseshit. And it was the festival, in my opinion, that was behind it. And then they wouldn't let us. They wouldn't let us do our parades. They wouldn't let us uh, carry. They wouldn't let us make any noise. It's supposed to be a festival. Uh, but Disney had uh, pirates. Uh, they had the uh, that pirate movie. They were dressed up in uh, masks and they had guns and knives and swords. You know, Caribbean of the pilot, pirates of the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. No problem with Disney. So uh, we filmed all this stuff and we're cutting a short. Uh, uh, we're cutting a short a short uh, called uh, "From Festival to Fascism." And, uh, you know, how, I'm fucking 71 years old. They put arresting me, you know, what am I going to, what am I going to do? Right? Well, so, well uh, as soon as it's made available, send it my way. I will tell, yeah. I'll share it out and make sure people see it. But just the idea that, and I'll never go back to can, I'll never go again. I don't blame you. Yeah. Really bad stuff. And then, you know, the South of France is where, uh, you know, it was like the, uh, ground zero for the French fascism, you know? The uh, Vichy uh, government. And I speak fucking fluent French. And I've been going to France since I'm like nine years old. You know, uh, and I've been going to Cannes since 1971 when I slept on the beach. And everybody loved it. thought it was great. It was a festival. It is not a festival. It is a some kind of club for a certain coterie of uh, intellectual filmmakers who all are in the club. And then it's uh, a, a, a mouthpiece for, uh, you know, it's a... It's uh, under the thumb of these big companies who sponsor, you know, mm -hmm. who pay the, uh, you know, they need the big sponsors. So they show a lot of big movies and, and uh, I don't know what, you know, I really don't get it that they uh, were that nasty to us. I don't understand it. We had nothing. We had no fake guns. We had no fake knives. Kabuki man is in makeup. It's not even a mask. Yes. Toxic Avenger is a mask. But who, they all know the fucking toxic. He's carrying a mop, for Christ's sake. <laughs> yeah. Sundance, Sundance took the mop away. They confiscated the mop. They said it was a weapon. Uh, you know, they confiscated the accordion. Uh, they had a guy playing the accordion. They confiscated the accordion. That's because, insane. But right up the street, they had a band. Uh, they had a cover band playing uh, very loud, shitty rock and roll. So, you know, it, it, it's, uh, it is a uh, bad world right now. Very yeah. Bad. But you're one of the better things in it, and I appreciate your time, Lloyd. Thanks, Michael. Good luck with everything. Merry Christmas. Keep in touch, and uh, let me know when this airs. I will. I'll send I you will. a link. Great. Thank you, and good luck with everything.